You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. These were very, very hard to come by. So was our cargo. Whatever you got going on here ain't exactly approved by Congress. It's a military operation. Really? Who are you? Ripley Ellen, Lieutenant First Class, number 36706. Ellen Ripley died 200 years ago. You're a thing, a construct. They grew you in a lab. What the hell is going on here? He is breeding an alien species. I wish you could understand what we're trying to do here. Now they brought it out of you. Not all the way out. You want to tell us what this is? It's a queen. She'll breed. You'll die. Ellen Ripley died trying to wipe the species out. I'm not anxious to see her taking up her old hobby. feel it. I can hear it moving. So he like ran into these things before. Yeah. What did you do? I died. We're moving. That's a standard emergency procedure. Any serious problem in the ship autopilots back to home base. What's home base? Earth. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm Mike White. Joining me once again is El Goro. Hey, how's it going, everybody? Also back in the booth is Mr. Mike Thompson. Who are you expecting? Santa Claus? On this special episode of the Projection Booth, we are looking at Alien 4, also known as Alien Resurrection. It's the next chapter, some might say the last chapter, of the Alien Saga, started by Ridley Scott way back in 1979. Released in 1997, we rejoin Ellen Ripley five years after Alien 3, but 200 years after the events portrayed in Alien 3. We'll discuss the strange bedfellows that made it happen, and we'll be spoiling the film as we go along, so you have been warned. Al Gore, when was the first time you saw Alien Resurrection, and what did you think? 
It had to have been in 1998. Uh, I definitely didn't catch this in its theatrical release because I would have been too young, but I would have picked it up when it became available on VHS. And for myself, it came with a great deal of anticipation. Even though I was uh, far too young to see these movies in theaters, uh, I was a huge Alien fan, going back to when I was a very small child and was first gifted the Kenner Alien figures that came out in the early 90s. And then that really kind of kick-started this obsession with this franchise that became even more stronger due to the fact that when I finally caught glimpses of what the theatrical alien was, the live action alien was, divorced from the comic books I was reading from Dark Horse, divorced from the toys, it scared the hell out of me. And I've always had this impulse that if I'm frightened by something, I dive deep into it. So by even by the time Resurrection came out, I was a huge fan of the franchise. I'd rented all the films, I'd read all the comic books I'd gotten my hands on, and I was meeting this film with a great deal of anticipation. Hell, I even picked up the Cracked parody of it back when Cracked was a magazine instead of a uh, website, just so I can get a glimpse of what to expect out of this movie because the only thing i had heard was space pirates were going to be involved and i was so down for that space pirates only maybe perhaps to be outdone by the ice pirates and that's why i actually paired these films up together when i discussed them back on my podcast talk without rhythm because hey i love me some space pirates sadly there's not too many space pirate films but ice pirates it's a good pairing with this film and mike how about yourself there are so many parallels with my own experience. <laughs> I I also briefly had the large size Kenner action figure in my house, but I was so terrified that I made my parents take it back to the store. Oh, and oh. and it it is the great. It may be one of the ten biggest regrets of my life. <laughs> and every time I'm at a comic convention and I see that thing, it just kills me a little bit inside. That and, and even my mother will say, like, I can't believe I took it back. I should have just, you know, put it somewhere else and waited until you were older. So I had a lot of fear and terror just regarding the the franchise for a long time. It took me, I think. I saw Aliens many times, but it was a while till I actually was ready to watch the first Alien because I was just so sure it was going to be the scariest thing I'd ever seen. And of course, I loved it when I did see it. Coming to Alien Resurrection, I saw it in the theater when it opened, and I absolutely couldn't wait. I had gotten my hands on the original script and read it many, many times leading up to the movie, and the experience was devastating. <laughs> Because what I had read was not really on the screen, but you know we'll we'll get into that. I read that script, and I figure you must have given it to me. Yes, I did. I can almost visualize. I'm positive I left it in like the mailbox at your house. Oh God, yeah. <laughs> all those all those years ago, because I was I think I was living in Chicago then, and and but I knew I was going to be in town, and and I knew you had to read this because it had at the. <laughs> It had changed my life when I read it. Now, was that the actually uh, the release script book that was that they put out, uh, like in '97? No, I think the release script book was closer to the shooting draft. Gotcha. This was this was a draft I'd gotten before the movie was, I think, even in production. It was the version that that I that that was written before the studio came in and said, "Yeah, that's going to cost three trillion dollars. We need you to cut out X number of things." Yeah, because that first 
draft was, I want to say September of 95. So it would have been like a while before the green light went. And I don't know if it was that first draft or the second draft. And apparently there were like five different endings to this that were going on, but I'm pretty sure it was, it was either the first or second draft because of the whole thing of the scene in a huge area where they grow fruits and vegetables. It's almost like a garden. Plus they grow a whole lot of marijuana. And that one, curiously enough, made it into a couple different iterations of the script. Again, referring back to that weird cracked parody before I even saw the film. For some reason, that was actually in the parody. So I was disappointed when I finally saw the film and then that scene wasn't in the film. Yeah, because apparently what the Auriga, the ship, is outside of international space waters. <laughs> Out past and the neutrals, either in or outside the neutral zone. Close enough that they're not a threat to the Klingons, but definitely somewhere out there, just past Pluto. So they're like able to do all of these experiments. And yeah, they make their money by growing all this pot out in space. It's very Dark Star. I was reminded a little bit of one of the drafts of, I think it was the Eric Red draft of Alien 3, because there's a dream sequence that takes place, and it is Ripley in this big field of wheat, and then it also kind of comes back in that jungle scene. Like, the first or second page of of the draft that we read does say, like, angle, wheat. I can't remember the scene right now. It's like there's the vision, but they're out in a wheat field, and that's when the my mom says there are no real monsters, but there are. Yeah, if I recall correctly, it had, it had to do with a vision of uh, Ripley and Newt, and then there was going to be this bug that was going to grow to monstrous proportions, and then things turning into things, and boom, dream sequence. Yeah, and she talks in the director's cut about her dreams, but... I think that gets cut out of the theatrical release. Anything that referenced Newt seems to have been just removed from the theatrical version. You know, in the extended version, because as he says, this is not the director's cut. You know, the director's cut is what you saw. I'm like, okay, buddy. Because that has the part where, you know, when, when they're showing the clone all the different pictures trying to get her to do word associate, or like, you know, like this is, this is fruit. This is a glove. They show her a picture of a little girl and she, you know, kind of breaks down and, and that comes up with the marker of, you know, special edition, meaning that they, they chopped it out. It's a nice thing of of a reference for people that were totally invested in the series, but I can kind of see why they would cut it out just for, well, one, for pacing. It's it's not t- terribly necessary, but for those that are invested in the series, it was a very nice scene, and I, I do like the way Sigourney Weaver played that. She's excellent through the whole movie. It's it's an interesting thing of like you you know you spend all of the second movie, the, not all of it, the, the you know the crux of the second movie is she's got to save this girl. And the third movie is, okay, that's done. (laughs) You know, now this one is like, well, maybe we can talk about that a little bit. And, but then, but I I completely agree with what you're saying. It's one of those things of, this is a nice to have, but in terms of the story and the plot right now, this is the kind of stuff we're going to lose to get this under two hours. Mm -hmm. As I was going back and starting to do research on this, I came to a moment where I was just like, do I even want to fucking do this episode? Because I remember how much vitriol we got over the Alien 3 episode we did, which I I like Alien 3, but yet, apparently, I didn't like it enough for the fans. I am, as I said, a huge Alien fan, and as such, I'm invested in pretty much every aspect of Alien. And even I steer clear of a lot of the fan side of Alien, 
just because there are some really hateful people in that community. Oh, good lord! Don't get me wrong. You know, yes, I could, I could, I could, I listened to that episode, and yes, I identified the part, the parts that you got wrong or that you were just misinformed on. It happens, but I'm not going to, you know, uh, shove it down your throat just because you happen to get something uh, factually wrong. Haven't helped me that I thought that a really shitty looking rod puppet was a CGI creation. I thought the same thing when because you're listening. I'm listening to the commentary or, or the behind the scenes on Alien Resurrection, and they're saying, "Oh, you know, these these were the first CG aliens." And I'm like, "No, uh, really? I was positive that they were CG, and at least in a few moments, they look that way, or it looks that way to me in Alien Three. It was just poorly composited, but there was that CG augmentation during the fracturing of the drone skull. When uh, and that's the only bit of CG. But I mean, honestly, the first time I saw it, I assumed it was CG because it didn't look great. And then later on, I found out it was a rod puppet. Most people assume it is. But as far as you know, you not liking it enough, even amongst the alien, the hardcore alien community, there are splits within them. There are some people that think that anything past the first one is terrible. There are some people nobody can agree on which of the are actually quality films in a strange way they're all completely unique and separate from one another even though they're all one you know they're all completely connected to one another mm-hmm. you know like i was thinking back to when a friend of mine read that he also read the draft that, that we had of, of resurrection and he was like you know i don't know if this is a good alien movie i think maybe it's just a good action movie and i was like well what does that mean <laughs> like <laughs> like does i think aliens is a good action movie and a good alien movie <laughs> Again, uh, that's uh, one of the reasons that I really do love this franchise is that at least for the original four, there seemed to be a dedicated attempt on the behalf of the producers to actually try to bring in a different directorial vision and uh, try to take the the story in different ways. I mean, you could see that with the with the developing of from Alien to Aliens, the multitude of different scripts that came out as part of Alien Three, and of course with Alien Resurrection, they went with Jean Pierre Jeunet. Because he was different, because he could bring something else. And while not everybody necessarily responds to perhaps his the aesthetic he brought to this series, I nevertheless uh, strongly respond to it for my own reasons that I'm sure we'll get into. And it's one of the reasons that I enjoy the franchise, that each of these films are so different, that they can allow people to play in this environment, particularly as we exist in our current uh, franchise mindset of kind of sameness. The idea that there will develop in a franchise a sort of house style, and you can bring in other directors, but more or less they want to try to keep things relatively cohesive. The Alien franchise didn't have that. They wildly swung in different directions, and I think that made for some very interesting films that we're still talking about. I should add a big asterisk to what you just said, though, as far as the producers wanted to go this way, because well, <laughs> I don't think Hill and Geiler... Skyler did not want this, and like he's even on the the uh, the making of saying, "I didn't like the script. I didn't want it to go this way." <laughs> I'm just like, okay. He say he says like he goes, "We read this, and I was just like, this is the end of the franchise." Rest in peace, David Geiler. We got to throw that out there. In a way, he turned out to be right. <laughs> like for quite a few years. It, chronologically speaking, it is the last one. Like there hasn't been any that, that not, there are no stories that take place at least not yet after this one. This is the last Ripley alien film. 
even the expanded material around this, it was interesting how little of an impact it actually had. Extended universe, if you want to refer to that, uh, uh, how little of an impact it had on stories that people were telling in the alien universe. Nobody really was all that interested in telling the follow-up to Resurrection. There was one novel, and then it was promptly forgotten about. I haven't read that. In that novel, is it following the aliens, or is it following Ripley, or is it both? It is actually following Ripley. Let's see if I can reach over and grab it. Uh, yeah, it's Original Sin by uh, Michael Jan Friedman, which is just following the crew of the Betty after the events of Resurrection. It doesn't really do much with them. I mean, it's it's a pretty much bog-standard alien story that just happens to feature the surviving members of Alien Resurrection. And so we get a little bit more with Ripley 8. But outside of that one novel, nobody really played with these characters. They weren't really continued forward in any comic books. And even when uh, Titan Books decided to bring back and start releasing new original Alien novels a couple of years ago, some of them were set chronologically after Resurrection. But they made a big attempt to sort of reestablish the status quo. Wayland yutani came back. Apparently, it got better after its buyout from Walmart. And they mostly just seemed to sort of forget the world that Joss Whedon et al. had created in Alien Resurrection. And I mentioned that kind of strange bedfellows things as far as this being a Whedon script and then Genet coming in and directing it the majority of the uh, of the crew as far as i know was french so it's got this french sensibility it's got Genet and all of his guys working on this but then it's a joss whedon script so you have this very american sensibility of whedon coming in here and doing this and whedon is like pop culture incorporated you know he just he knows what sells and he's able to do that and and do it very well at least for a lot of years we were at comic-con i I think like two years after this, because I think this this was like just before Whedon skyrocketed with Buffy the Vampire Slayer, mm-hmm. and and we were we were at like the a panel for that, and somebody asked him, "Hey, is there going to be an Alien Five? And his response was, "Did you see Alien Four? And then he just put and then he just put his head down. <laughs> I've always tried to reconcile that because at least on the surface level. And even by his own admission, the the final film more or less stuck with his script. You know, certain things were dropped out, but these were his characters. And he's described it as being more of a, a level of presentation. They were saying the words, but they weren't saying them right. And I was trying to reconcile. It's like, well, what does that mean? What are you getting into? And the thing I kind of landed on is the idea that Whedon in his various stories, there is an element of incredible earnestness. In his stories, you know, there might be some ridiculous situations. There's a lot of pithy lines and comedy, but nevertheless, from an emotional standpoint, everything is very people are invested in this world. Whereas the sensibility that Junet and and everybody else involved in this production with it had a much more comedic. Let's kind of have fun with the weirdness of this world. And I think that's where one of the the major disparities between Whedon's vision and, say, Junet and the, everybody else he was working with and how they presented their film. And one of the reasons I enjoy this film is from an aesthetic standpoint, from a general tonal standpoint, it really does remind me of so many of the French science fiction comics you would read and stuff like Heavy Metal. 
that for for the, the look of the characters, the amazingly ugly, expressive actors that they got to be to be in some of these roles, the exaggeration of everything, even down to just how viscous and drooling the aliens was, it feels like it was a live action literalization of the kind of comic books that, you know, a Mobius would have, would have done appropriately enough since he worked on the first alien. And also, uh, I've been reading a lot of Alejandro Jodorowsky comic books as part of his, uh, science fiction stuff. It feels very much of a piece with that particular kind of French metal or law sensibility. It's the difference in tone, right? Mm. Like the screenplay is this hard driving, continually moving action piece from the writer of, you know, from the guy who rewrote speed. <laughs> like, and so, and so when I go into the theater, then this is what I expect to get. And in the first 20 minutes, I'm like, something has gone wrong here <laughs> in terms of my own personal experience. And so I was so angry watching this movie because it was not at all what I expected. And it is because of the tone and watching it again this morning and, and earlier this week, I'm like, is this movie supposed to be a comedy? And there, there's parts of it. And even in the commentary, they talk about the scene where Dan Hedaya reaches back and pulls out a, a piece of his of his brain, which I do not remember that being in the script. And I think that might have been the part in the theater that broke me all those years ago. But, you know, in the commentary, he they're specifically talking about the studio wanted it out. It actually went for longer. Like he, he sees his brain, I guess, and, and just passes out from shock. And apparently Sigourney Weaver didn't like that part. <laughs> the, the test audience saved them. And it's just, there definitely is a very, and they, even in the, in the commentary and also in the, uh, in the behind the scenes stuff, they just talk about the Frenchness <laughs> of the director and how, how the studio absolutely was like, no, 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 this is what we brought you for. <laughs> like, this, yep. is, this is what we brought you in for. So keep doing all of that. And that was that for me is so challenging to reconcile because I really feel like when I say that I'm saying this is a limitation of myself, not so much as the film. It really felt to me like, you know, the, the studio comes in and they're like, OK, we got to figure out how to get things back on track because Alien 3 was not what people wanted. So how do we make this aliens again? And that's what Joss Whedon comes in and does. And, and then, and then the director comes in and is like, yeah, I'm not interested in any of that. <laughs> I'm going to do, I'm going to do what I want to do. And he did it. So the quote was, it wasn't a question of doing everything differently. Although they changed the ending, it was mostly a matter of doing everything wrong. They said the lines, but they said them all wrong. They cast it wrong. They designed it wrong. They scored it wrong. They did everything wrong they could possibly do. It's actually a fascinating lesson in filmmaking because everything they did reflects back to the script or looks like something from it. And people assume that I hated it because they changed the script. But it wasn't so much that they changed it, they executed it in such a ghastly fashion, they rendered it unwatchable. That sensibility, it speaks mostly to, you know, his his inherent sensibilities. It's his what he expects out of a science fiction story. And admittedly, not all of the European or traditionally French approach to science fiction that will blithely tonal shift sometimes from page to page of over the top comedy or just uh, incredible slapstick into, you know, very, very serious and gory stuff. That sort of freewheeling or. Art artistic freedom that's not for everybody's taste 
I mean, I, I would not necessarily hand off a copy of uh, Jodorowsky's uh, In Call to somebody and it's like, Harry, you like Star Wars? Why don't you read this? I do like that idea, though. <laughs> there is some fun to be found there. But to me, I actually I actually think that's what makes the movie so charming. And the fact that he talks about it was cast wrong. I actually love the cast of this, including some people you would not expect to find in this kind of feature. I mean, um, like um, J.E. Freeman, who plays the uh, villainous Dr. Ren. His facial expressions are just so perfect. In this movie, they are pitch perfect for the tone they are going for. The way you're saying it right now is like, you're right. For the tone this movie is going for, it's completely right. When I was watching it this morning, I'm like, this guy is chewing up the scenery with both hands <laughs> at every turn. And it's like, yeah, but that's what they wanted. <laughs> that's well, I, I, that's, I that's heard, me not getting it. I also heard an anecdotal account, and I, I have no verification for this, but uh, apparently Whedon at some point uh, disparaged the casting of Brad Dorif. You know, for similar reasons of uh, Jack Nicholson, the fact that Brad Dorff is so used to playing crazy people, it's not a surprise when he goes insane. It's like, well, did it need to be a surprise when the guy who is who, who is purposely breeding aliens it ends up being a nut bar? That's not the kind of thing that anybody was going to be. Oh, hey, I'm surprised he went crazy. <laughs> And I'm sure Brad Dorff was having a blast when he was interacting with the man in the suit with the alien. I, and it's that it's those little scenes that, again, it's something we have not seen. And that's why I appreciate it. When I read that script, I was so interested and surprised by the by the way Jonner is written. You know, you read the whole script and you're like, man, this guy is going to get killed and it's going to be spectacular because he is such a piece of shit. And <laughs> and and. And then when they, when they, you know, I read, oh, they cast Ron Perlman. This is going to be great. And then I watched him in the movie and I'm like, I cannot stand anything that he is doing <laughs> because it just, that quote from Whedon spoke to me perfectly from my previous, you know, my reaction from all those years ago. Cause I think, I think I reviewed it for cashiers. And I think at the time I said it was the cinematic equivalent of being punched in the balls <laughs> because I was so angry that this movie was not what I had envisioned it to be based on the script. I was just coming into it and, you know, you know, without that. And I loved Ron Perlman in this and actually thinking back because I was looking through his roles and trying to think, you know, plot in my head and what I had seen. I think this may have been the first anything I had ever seen Ron Perlman in where he wasn't wearing heavy prosthesis because I watched, you know, Beauty and the Beast and I watched the uh, Island of Dr. Moreau, but I think this is the first time I ever saw Ron Perlman's face and he left an impression. I love Ron Perlman in this movie because as you say, his archetype is the one that's destined to die. You know, he is he is the next iteration of Yafit Kodo or Mark Rolston, the big bruiser that's very that nobody likes and very uh, kind of acerbic at times. And he's going to be alien fodder. And the fact that he lived, I loved that. I mean, he's a terrible character and a terrible person, but I kind of love the fact that he lived. Don't you think we should talk about the shares? Yafit Kodo should have blindly thrown more knives at people. And now you've got that great tie in, too, between Ice Pirates and, and this with uh, Ron Perlman. Exactly. And of course, being the weird guy that I was, I was looking for the various ways that this connected back to Dune, uh, the uh, David Lynch version. And uh, we did we do have a couple connections with this. We do have Brad Dorif showing up in this. And uh, the gentleman who did the costumes, I forget his name right now. I think it's Bob Ringwood. Uh, he also worked on Dune, I believe. 
do you still dislike it as much as you did back in the theater? Is this still a punch in the balls? I was very angry watching it again. <laughs> and this time I turned on everybody. <laughs> so this time I was like, wait a minute, this part of the script makes no sense. Why did I ever like that? <laughs> like, I was just, you know, but, but, you know, you start listening to the behind the scenes stuff and you're like, okay, I, I get it more now. Like I get what they were going for. Is, is this the alien movie that I'm going to rewatch again? No. Does it make me as angry as, as it did before? Back then, probably not, but, but but I can I will also say that back then there was no Alien versus Predator to compare it to. <laughs> <laughs> I was watching and I was getting nitpicky and ludicrous at one point, and that's why I went back and was rewatching it today because I was just like, wait a minute, Purvis better not have had his glasses on when the, that face hugger came out because there's no way those would have survived that process. <laughs> <laughs> And then when I, the other thing was, that was frustrating me even then was like, I didn't have time to go back and, and, and I, I also will say that there was part of me that didn't want to go back and reread the script again, because I'm like, clearly that impacted my experience with this film the first time. I don't want it to do it again this time, but the scene in which when Christie is climbing up uh, out of the water and the alien gets on him and, you know, he, he unbuckles himself to sacrifice himself. The way that that was shot, where I was just like, this is taking a hundred years for him to do this. And I just feel like he could have just kicked that alien's hand off of his boot (laughs) or he could have just, I don't know, reached around and just grabbed that ladder. Like, is he supposed to be like dying because he just got sprayed in the face with acid? I mean, that would make sense, but I'm just like, for some reason, that scene this time around really was just getting to me. The other thing is, and, and this is a, it's this again is a personal thing is, one of the things I remembered most from the script that I was very excited to see was the potential hand-to-hand combat scene between Ripley and one of the one of the aliens. Because in the script, that's kind of her introduction to the team. The alien comes out, she fights it, and she grabs its tongue and breaks it off. And that scene was, I was like, this is perfect. I didn't even know that it made perfect sense to me that it would eventually reach this level and that, and now we're going to get it. And instead we get this, She's going to shoot through the dead guy's body, and then later she's going to rip the tongue off because it's funny, I guess. <laughs> and again, I don't know if that was rewritten that way or if it was it, – and it may very well have been just a logistical thing of watching it now and thinking about it now. There may not have been a way at the time to shoot the scene as written without it looking absolutely idiotic. Yeah, it would have it would have been difficult as good as the sculpts were that ADI did for the aliens in them because I actually do really like the work they did in this. It looks great. Yeah, I don't I don't know if they would have been able to necessarily pull that off as well as perhaps they would have liked. So it it, it probably it probably was a concession towards the reality of the practical effect. It was one of those things where I'm watching it now and I'm like, one of my other problems with with the removal of that, too, was that that also at least helped me buy into the idea that the team was going to be like, okay, we're going to keep you with us because you just killed this thing. And we all saw how much of a badass you are, even though you do already have some of that with the basketball scene earlier. Whereas the way it's presented in the movie, when she shoots through the dead body, I'm like, did anybody even see that happen? <laughs> like, I mean, I guess they must have put it together, but it's just like that part of it, like losing that part of it was even now, clearly 20 some years later, it's still hard for me. <laughs> 
I really like the shooting through uh, the Michael Wincott body at the alien. It kind of reminds me of when um, there's the boot in Once Upon a Time in the West, and the boot ends up shooting the guy. I just, I don't know. I thought that was a nice introduction for her to the team. To your point, they probably don't see it. And as far as her ripping out the tongue, yeah, that doesn't really make any sense, or the, the extra mouth, other than it being some sort of like a, like a castration thing. Yeah, that's that's definitely how I saw it in there. I mean, it does kind of flop around rather suggestively. The the first appearance of the queen alien when it comes out of her her chest. I mean, it basically has a foreskin on and comes oh, out. Yeah. Well, th- th- I mean, that's always been the design of the alien. It's it, it's a penis with teeth. Yeah, yeah, it's a big walking angry penis. That's Giger right now. He's he's weaponized phalluses his entire career. Rest in peace, Giger. And I like the idea of how the team comes together and peels apart just the way that we have people being added to the team and then taken away from the team at the same time like just the way that the, they're going back and forth with how many people are going to make it out well we're going to add Purvis to the group we're going to lose this person we're going to add this other person to the group and you know I just kind of like the the way that it becomes the the almost like a Dungeons and Dragons type adventure <laughs> as we're going through this ship and while we do have a good idea of which people are going to survive to the end, they do so- somewhat sub- subvert our expectations. I was spe- speaking before that Ron Perlman's character of Johnner is the archetype that's destined to die. But at the same time, the fact that the first member of the crew of the Betty is Michael Wincott's character, who's this kind of cool guy. And, you know, he's got the raspy voice and he's like, all right, he's going to be a cool guy. Now he's dead. Yeah, they present him as he's the captain. So he's the he's the veteran on this team, right? He's the veteran who's smart enough to be captain, too. So, yeah, of course, he's going to make it. And they even send him off on his own sort of at that at that point. He's going to forge ahead because that's what you know, that that's he's smart enough to do. He's he's smart enough to handle it on his own. Nope, he's gone. Because he dies, and then Hilliard dies, and between Wincott and Flowers, they're basically like the mom and dad of the Betty. And then you've got the three wayward sons with Bryce, Johnner, and Christy. And I like how Christy steps up and becomes that leader for a while before he dies. And it's like, wow, you would expect Christy is such a badass. And I love that, and this might have pissed you off too as far as the script goes, because Christy's kind of two people in the script. He's like this Chaoyun fat clone, plus he's himself, and then they take those two things and merge them together so when you get that awesome shot of him with those travis bickle guns and he shoots up and uh gets the two ricochets before it goes right into the soldier's head it's like oh yeah that's totally a chow yun fat move and yeah i'm with you in the death of christy that that's always kind of bugged me and it's like well why didn't he just kick it off that what they really needed to do was literally show the alien with a death grip because i think that was what they were trying to show he got the acid in the face he was exhausted he knew he couldn't get loose of the alien it was going to drag him down so he was willing to sacrifice himself to save his friend but in order to sell that it needed to be a, a closed claw talent thing the way they presented to the movie all the steps he needs to take to unbuckle himself is like man that is way more work than, <laughs> yeah. than just moving that hand off there or just you know just just swing it around a little bit and grabbing onto the ladder yourself you got Ron Perlman up there, and he's a big guy. He could have gone down a couple rungs and just kind of grabbed the dudes. I do think that fits into his character, right? True. Like, he's willing to shoot at the thing, but he's not going to do any more work than that. He already wanted to, to, to ditch the one guy anyway. 
Well, there's that weird new thing where the aliens can now spit acid. Uh, that never made sense to me that it spits acid at Christie. I was like, did you bite the inside of your mouth? And then <laughs> I don't know. I mean, the-, <laughs> the first two movies are the only ones where the acid really always makes sense. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes like maybe, a, maybe I need to rewatch the third one to make sure. But it, it feels like in all the subsequent films, it, it just becomes more of a okay, well, the plot needs the acid to come out right now. So it's just going to come out right now. And and the other thing, so if you can spit the acid out, then why'd you have to rip the one of one of your buddies apart to melt the floor? Couldn't you just melt the floor that way? It's a good question. But then again, the, the acid doesn't completely dissolve his face like the other acid that we saw like Mark Rolson Drake's character have. So maybe it's a less potent acid. I don't know. You just They did it because it, it, it was cool. And you know what? There was an action figure before that that had a spitting action. So maybe they decided to use it in the script. Still to this day, and I'm grateful for it. And again, I, I'm still sad that I, I, I let that one go. But it's amazing to me that these were ever something that was like, yeah, this needs a toy line. Oh, and marketed for kids. Hardcore marketed to kids. Kenner presents you alien action figure. Dinette's glow. Quick, shut the airlock. The alien's locked out now. He got through. Shh. Give up. Alien can't be beat. We'll tap him with the light. Don, he'll destroy the spaceship. We've lost. Better find another ship. Let's try the kitchen. <laughs> another triumph for alien. Alien. Action figure, new from Kenner. Because those kids in the commercial were like 10 years old when they were... That's part of the reason that I was completely obsessed with the first one, Mm -hmm. even though it took me years to watch it. Because like I'd go to the bookstore and I'd, I'd flip through the comic novelization or all the other things. For me... Aliens were the the cool things in the cantina and in Star Wars. They weren't supposed to be scary. (laughs) And this scariest thing I'd ever seen. I am right there with you. When I see the end of Alien, which it took me so many years to actually watch the original Ridley Scott Alien, like you, I saw it well after Aliens. And I still picture that comic novel in my head. I still picture the exact way that it was drawn before, like the, the afterburners and burning the alien off and all that kind of stuff. It's like, yeah, that's, that's my version of Alien is the comic book version of Alien. I find Alien Resurrection fascinating in just the way that it is exploring the things that have come before it, the way that we have taken this Ripley character and we killed her off in the third one, and now she's back as this, but it's she's not Ripley anymore. She's kind of Ripley, but not Ripley, and the way that we're exploring still what it means to be human versus what it isn't to be human and that we've got her as that character but then we also have call as that character as this second generation auton and i'm guessing that her name is call because it sounds like recall and a call is like recall 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 i can see it and I like that she is more human than Ripley is, even though she's a machine. And I just like the way that they're exploring that, as well as exploring the same things that we've done in the other movies, where it comes to motherhood and you know what it means to accept your child, reject your child, and that we're playing with that also with the idea of how much of Ripley's alien versus how much of the queen is Ripley. And it's, again, very much in keeping with some of the inherent themes of the franchise. I mean, when we look at the life cycle of the alien, it's about the 
infection of a foreign entity. It is it is the propagation through extra, extraterrestrial rape, and then how that fits into the inherent body horror aspect of it. And that was the original Ripley's ultimate fate. You know, she herself was infected with the embryo, and she chose to sacrifice herself. And then with this Ripley Eight character, it further ons it, it get, adds a new twist to that sort of body horror element by integration, rather than it being a separate entity entity that explodes outward like a parasite the alienness becomes almost symbiotic and she becomes this combined entity and it's something that i think got played up very interesting in at least the uh novelization where it was uh, going deeper into the way her thoughts were transformed and how she was almost psychically tapping into the nest and they touch on that a little but one of the more interesting elements was also the fact that the aliens themselves had elements of her memory as well because they're they're her genetic offspring that the aliens we're seeing in this are not the aliens from the previous films they are something else they're mutants themselves which is why they have less of a Giger-esque biomechanical look and a much fleshier look to them and it's again it's that it's that development that inherent alienness and the infection of the flesh that is a very much a part of this franchise yeah, I got a lot of shit about that, too. <laughs> when it comes to the idea of, because there are those weird hybrids where it's like, oh, well, if a facehugger attacks a rhino, then the baby coming out is going to be a rhino alien. And it's like, well, that ruins the entire DNA of the species, folks. You know, you can't have, if it mates with a gerbil, that it's going to be this tiny little alien going, Meh! You know, running around. Trust me, nobody has nobody has come up with a good explanation for a lot of those things. <laughs> but they always have to be the same creature that comes out in order for the race to propagate. But this makes sense in so far as well. It makes sense in a way that their DNA is is coming together, so that then the aliens look a different. That then the queen has a different cycle. You know that she gives birth in a more human way as opposed to a gerbil alien. There's been so many wild contradictions onto exactly how the alien works and, and at certain points they decide, okay, we're going to scrap all of this and then we're going to go through a 20th Century Fox before it was bought out by Disney. They decided that they were going to officially say that this is how the alien works and all the weird hybrid things. That's not really a thing except when it is. It doesn't make any sense and it's been wildly contradicted many, many times over the years. You just kind of have to accept it, I suppose. Well, it just becomes, unfortunately, more and more of a, okay, we just need it to work this way in service of the plot. <laughs> exactly. It's like the, the, the eternal question of, well, how long does it take for an alien to gestate? Well, it gestates at the speed of plot. That's why Purvis, who got infected at the same time as everybody else, why he doesn't have an alien uh, bursting out of him early uh, at the same time, why he's still able to walk around. It's cooler for him to have the alien so that it can explode through the other guy's head. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Now, it's at some point, I, I don't remember the source of this, but I think it was it was said somewhere that uh, he was diabetic, and so there was a shift in his biology, which caused a slower gestation. But that's that's Star Wars stuff. That's pe that's fans jumping in to explain the inconsistencies of the it world. It was his midi chlorian count that kept yeah. him from 
from. Yeah. <laughs> it's got a very high M number. Just wait until you jump into the fan conversations of Queen versus Egg Morphing, and then uh, the resultant <laughs> furor that comes out of that. I mean, we could talk about who fertilized the egg that became the ba- baby alien, you know? And there are moments in the movie when Ripley kind of gets into that whole world of the aliens goes into the literal underworld of the ship and everything where it looks like she's just boning aliens like yeah, crazy. That, that's that was that was the thing that was what i was thinking of earlier was like so the, the the movie i was waiting for was the one where she has the hand-to-hand fight with with the alien and the movie i was given <laughs> was the one where she's getting it on with one <laughs> the tender embrace of the alien but again that scene kind of works for me because that one felt the most evocative of giger and when you look at his sort of biomechanical bodyscapes and that sort of the the charged sexu- sexuality of his paintings, dark as it is, that seemed to fit very well with what they were doing with, you know, Ripley absorbed into the hive or uh, nestled in the arms of the aliens. I could see the aliens not giving a shit about Ripley because she's more one of them than these other creatures that they exactly. inherently want to kill. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. It was the thing. Hey, you smell like us. We're going to deposit you in the hive. This is just you're, you're just somebody else coming home. That's it. Exactly. I have a, a theory. I mean, if every one of these movies has an Android character and we start with Ash, then we move to Bishop, then we have Call, then we have David. Does that mean that Ellen is going to be the next Android that we get because she's the next in line alphabetically? I mean, it would be a it would be a very easy way to bring Sigourney Weaver back into the franchise. No, we've had Walter though. Oh, fuck they did Walter. skip Walter. Yeah, but Walter died. So, man, I just want to help Walter with the fingering. You know. <laughs> hey, speaking of sexual subtext, subtext is kind of a generous word for that. <laughs> like. I, I still remember the first time I saw Covenant in the theater, and that scene came up, and somebody, it blessed them in the darkness of the theater, just went out, yeah, buddy! <laughs> and I wish it was me, but it wasn't. <laughs> I love the Call character, and I love what she represents, and I love this whole idea, too, of, you know, I talked about how motherhood is part of it, and that we have mother as the computer in the first one, and then we have switched to father in this one, and that father... The way that that call ports into the system is through the Bible. It's like of all places, of all things to do, to be, you know, and then that she takes over the father and basically says God is dead when she's like, father's dead, asshole. I really appreciate that, that moment. And I, I, I can't remember if that's necessarily in the script. I think it might be, but I, I'm pretty sure it is. But it's funny. I feel like that moment in the script, it's much more for a laugh, right? It's father's dead, asshole. Uh, attention, and she says that whole line about attention aliens, uh, you know, Ren is on this floor, go get him. And I feel like that's more what the script is trying to do, in my opinion. <laughs> Whereas I think the movie is much more like, yeah, yeah, we'll throw that in, but this, th- that's not the kind of humor we're going for in this picture. <laughs> not the same. Yeah, but in this one, it's much more, to me, it's the, the woman usurping the, the male role. And I love that all of the females that are normal, quote unquote, are dead by the end of the film. And now you have this alien woman hybrid and this android that are there. And then the only two men that are left at the end of this film are one guy who can't use his legs and Johnner, who's just like this mental midget, you know? (laughs) 
it's just like the worst of humanity has all come together at the end of the, this film. Yeah, but we but we dump them off on 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 Earth, which is a shithole. So it <laughs> it worked out well. Yeah, it's like we finally get to Earth, and and this is the Earth that we get to. And and I love that Jonner has that line about it being a shithole. And then when you get there, you're like, oh yeah, he's right. It is a shithole. Well, it's it's more that way in the in the extended version than in the theatrical one. In the theatrical one, actually, in the theatrical one, it isn't terrible. Yeah, they just show, they show the clouds, but they don't actually show the landscape, if I recall correctly. I think they look down because I was mm. I think I was watching that again, and, but they're just flying over it, and it all looks. And I think one of them even and even I think on the commentary they said no, no, you know we, we you know it was you know it was it was beautiful or something like that. I can't remember if that line is in the movie or not. Whereas in the extended version, you're basically in this. You, you, it's it's the Planet of the Apes ending in Italy. Well, <laughs> right? no, it was, like, it was Paris because the oh, that's right. It's, yeah, Paris. Background. That's right. That's right. Sorry, June having some fun. Well, we always have to destroy the Eiffel Tower if we're going to show some some sort of thing. You know, I mean, that's like a Roland Emmerich staple, right? And Michael Bay too. I think that was in Armageddon. We get to see Paris destroyed. Yeah, though these days we seem to be shifting it to uh, destroying the Golden Gate Bridge. So, <laughs> so many people, so many times the Golden Gate Bridge just gets so messed up in modern blockbusters. It's all those L.A. people to, uh, striking back at San Francisco. It is curious that it is nicer in one version. There's that moment where the sun hits their faces, and I'm kind of reminded of that Blade Runner ending, which is like, oh, Earth has returned to being green because there's no one there. But yeah, in the extended version, it's just like, here's the broken Eiffel Tower. Good luck. Here's the, you know, the, the four of you are on this planet. You're pretty much fucked now. Right, but they're also just going to disappear. Like, watching it again, I'm like, oh, so... In this version, they just go off and find Serenity and, <laughs> and 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 Mal and all those other people, and then they just take off and then fly. Like, yep, and that's uh, that again. That's the route they took with the one novelization or one novel follow up to this. They just went right back to being space pirates. I haven't read the novels, but I did read that there was a little bit of a follow up to Out of the Shadows with one called Sea of Sorrows. And Ellen shows up in that. But again, I haven't read that. And there's like a – who's this guy? Uh, Alan Decker seems to be a character in there. Yeah. Uh, so in Out of the Shadows, that was one that was actually set between Alien and Aliens. Okay. And so they actually had Ripley in that. And then they had to figure out a way to use her and then also get her so she ended up like she did in Aliens. And they, they manage it. It makes kind of sense, but you know, it is what it is. Whereas the other one, uh, Decker is her genetic descendant. And so he somehow has an element of the race memory and the aliens, they remember, uh, going up against Ripley. So they have a particular mad on against him. It's a good novel. It's just, it's, it does require a, a fair bit of, okay, I'm, I, well, I'm just going to go with what you're going, what you're putting out here. I mean, to be to be fair, the franchise overall asked that, too. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah, if you start getting in there, it's just going to drive you crazy. I mean, the, when when Wayland and or Yutani show up, it's just like, wait a second, this doesn't make any sense. We forget that there was no Wayland yutani or Queen Alien in the first Alien that, that's introduced by Cameron. And then, you know, you get other things that are introduced as we go along, and then they kind of try to retrofit these things. I am curious, you talked about the novelization. I read a little bit about the novelization, because I, I think there's a little bit more about De Stefano, who's the Raymond Cruz character, who I think should have gotten a little bit more to do in the movie, but 
he his death is so unceremonious to me. It's it's yeah. just it's just so frustrating. It's like, hey, the hat go go back there, and it's basically just telling him go back there and die. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> In the AC Crispin uh, novelization, they shifted over a couple a couple more things for DeStefano, just kind of developing his him as a little bit more of a character than he ultimately was in the final film. That's that weird moment where he and Christy have a moment. Yeah, about the guns. <laughs> so turned on by those guns. Watching that scene now, that is some of the truest shit that I've ever seen, because I've seen gun guys when they get together and they have that same glint in their eyes. Those two actors are perfect in that scene. I mean, they are completely selling it. It feels totally true. Like, this isn't even acting. It's just that catching them you know, behind the scenes. And I love Dan Hedaya, but man, oh man, he is making some of the goofiest faces in this movie. <laughs> that comes up in the commentary from from the one guy. I think he was the storyboard artist who, I can't remember his name right now, but he, he seemed to be like the most critical of, of the movie, in the, aside from, from David Geiler. But he, he had said like, you know, I, I wonder if the director would, you know, if he had seen American television, if he had seen Cheers. Would he have ca- would he have still cast this guy? And then in the commentary, you know, he taught the director talks about I loved him in Blood Simple, mm. and it's like yeah, but the problem is he's <laughs> the problem for me anyway is that he's not playing the same character he's playing in Blood Simple. He's playing the character from Cheers. <laughs> but again, I I I, so, I sort of enjoyed that for the tone that it gave it. It lended towards the comedic tone that obviously doesn't work for everybody. But it, to me, it, it again kind of fits. It, it speaks to the ineptitude of the organizations. I can go along with the idea basically of saying like, hey, you've seen this cliche military character 4,000 times. <laughs> okay. Yeah. We could have cast Arlie Ermey. Let's go a different way. I did love the moment, even though this might have been a rod puppet, but I don't think it was. The uh, I love the moment when the alien sneaks aboard the one shuttle, and then you get all the gore being thrown against the windows and stuff, and this blood coming up. I really enjoyed that, and then you know the the hand grenade that gets tossed in there. Again, I think that hand grenade might have been a rod puppet. I'm not sure. I like the themes that we're that, going that in. Hand grenade was real. It's just like the basketball scene. He threw it that one time, and it was perfect. Uh, we are obligate to mention that uh, uh, Sigourney Weaver is a 100% awesome baller, that she did indeed get that shot in one, nothing but net. Well done, Sigourney. Holy shit. There's a whole section on the DVD just about that. <laughs> and it's, and it, you know, I watched that. And I'm like, yep, this is, this is absolutely the right thing to do. And I love the fact that I think it was Pitoff who was going to digitally change it so that the ball would always stay in frame. And Sigourney Weaver was like, no, you're not doing that <laughs> because, nope. because that's going to ruin the whole thing. You can't. <laughs> and I love how uh, Perlman's just like, I fucked it up because yeah. I, I <laughs> broke character. <laughs> <laughs> so every time I watch that scene, I keep, I, I'm watching Perlman the entire time to watch for. The- <laughs> yeah, that's right. When I went back and was watching it today, I'm like, okay, I'm going to see how mad, how badly he, if, if he really does this, but no, they cut it together perfectly. Yeah. They edited it very well. And this was that perfect time for Ron Perlman. You were talking about how, yeah, he was in Beauty and the Beast. And I, I read a little bit of his autobiography. And he was just having a horrible time after Beauty and the Beast got canceled and just playing all these roles where he was like, I'm not even going to mention these roles. I'm not proud of these things. 
and then he meets Guillermo del Toro, and then he meets Janae and Caro. And it's like for a few years there, it was just like, oh, Ron Perlman's in this? Like after I went and saw Kronos, I was like, oh, Ron Perlman's in this? Okay, I will go see it. Whatever it is, I will go see it because he was working with such interesting directors. And those movies that he made with Janae and Caro, the movies that he still continues to make with del Toro, Fuck yeah. It's like, was perfect that he kind of became this actor for these foreign directors, which was just wonderful. And he's taking all these chances. His role in Kronos is still just one of my favorite things ever. Definitely. And I came to that later. This was a very interesting time in his career, especially since while he was simultaneously playing two type, because, you know, very much you look at Ron Perlman and it's like, okay, it makes sense. You cast him as the heavy, but in the hands of a right director, they can take that expectation and they can, they can twist it. They can have some fun with it. And you even got to see that in Resurrection because he had some legitimate laugh lines in this movie. Oh, yeah. Not all of them have aged well. He has one of the worst lines in the movie. One Which of one? the worst lines. That's after one of the best scenes in the film, when she goes in and sees all of those failed clones. It's a wonderful moment of pathos. It's fantastic. The the music, the music in this whole film is wonderful. I love the score. I love everything about that scene. And then when he does that, huh, must be a chick thing. I was just yeah. like, oh, fuck this movie. <laughs> that's That's not a line that has aged well. He also refers to Freeze as Ironsides. I didn't catch that. I'm like, wait, wait a minute. <laughs> he's he's referring to him from a character who's so. How many hundred of hundreds of years has it been since since Raymond Burr was Ironsides? <laughs> you know what? I, I still occasionally make Shakespeare references, so maybe in this world that the, the, that show finally got its due. And if that's what the future holds. I'm all for it. There you are. <laughs> well, are we sure it was the Raymond Burr version? Because there was that amazing version with Blair Underwood. Yeah. 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 Is- you know, or, you know, we're also assuming that there aren't going, I mean, this was hundreds of years from now. How many more versions could there have been? Right. You know, if, I mean, maybe that's what's coming next. Yeah. It's probably one of those stories that just gets rebooted over and over again, much like Hamlet or Macbeth. Yes. See, now that would have been awesome if instead of watching like QVC while they were drinking, they were watching Future Ironside. There it is. <laughs> and then it would, have, it would have just made that whole joke work. Keep going back to the motherhood thing. And the one other thing I wanted to bring up real quick was the idea of insects in this movie. And I did appreciate that they played more on the insects when it came to this. There's that scene that never made it to the original that is in the director's cut, which I don't think ultimately succeeds where they're crushing a bug. Like first you see the mouth and then you realize it's a bug and the guy crushes it and puts it in a straw and spits it out. Okay. I guess it was DiStefano in the novelization that does that. But so you got that, but then this whole idea of um, Ripley coming out of that cocoon, that dress, shift thing that she's wearing and the way that she comes out of that. I think that's wonderful. And of course, we have Brad Dourif later in the film saying, you know, she's a beautiful, beautiful butterfly. And I was like, well, that's really nice that they're kind of bringing in that Ripley is also very insectile. And it would have definitely, um, if they were going to continue on that, fit in interesting if they had gotten Cronenberg to direct this as they were apparently at one point courting. I mean, speaking of body horror, he, Cronenberg could have done interesting things with an alien film. He would have totally rewritten everything. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, and, and I'm not yeah. saying that I'm not saying that as a negative. <laughs> no, no. You know? 
I've often felt if you took William Gibson's Alien 3 script and then given it to Cronenberg, that would have been just something amazing. Am I the only one, too, that when we have uh, Ripley 8, does that 8 remind you guys of Infinity as well, or is that just me reaching? I could see it. I can see it. You know, the, the, the concept of the eternal Ripley, you know, she's back from the dead. Well, that's one of the things I was thinking about earlier, too, is is the, you know, the the cross DNA of, of all of them just, you know, just furthers the whole concept that she and this species are just destined for one another. You know, mm-hmm. they're 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 linked together because that's one of the other things about the franchise that's so interesting is that it isn't solely about at least for these four movies. And, and we've seen what happens without her, right? Like these, these are these, in these four movies. Like, okay, we have to have the monster, and we have to have her, you know. And I understand, like, that's a, a standard, you know, superhero kind of thing. Well, we have to have the the superhero, and we have to have the the villain. But it's it didn't ever have to go that way. But after the second one, I feel like, yeah, it did. <laughs> and then and the, it just made perfect sense to me from a thematically that it would be like, no, 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 they're they're just going to be combined now. Which has always been interesting to me, and I I, I, lo- I love these films for the arc of Ripley. You know, the the transformation of her down to her becoming an alien herself with with the clone of Ripley Eight. But what I've always found fascinating is the insistence of, assistance upon the producers to inject an element of legacy into these films. Whether it was you know bringing Ripley back for uh, Alien Three because originally there was there was a sense they weren't going to do that. Also, when Whedon pitched uh, his, uh, did his treatment for his Alien Four, it was going to follow a clone of Newt and it wasn't going to involve Sigourney Weaver. But there was always that tendency to no, we have to have uh, Sigourney Weaver in this to make this work. And then later when it shifted into the Ridley Scott films, he became the anchor point. It was, okay, this is our legacy thing. This is Ridley Scott. We can't do this without Ridley Scott. Neil Blomkamp, you want to make an alien movie? No, you can't because you're not Ridley Scott. Whereas for me, the alien franchise has always existed as something more than the films. And so there's been always been different people telling different stories with different people and all of these elements that create this larger alien universe. So th- I've never really been all that protective of, well, it has to involve uh, Sigourney Weaver. It has to involve Ridley Scott. I love the Sigourney Weaver alien films. I don't need her to be in an, in an alien movie for it to work, just as I don't need Ridley Scott doing whatever he was doing with Prometheus and, Co- and Covenant. I don't need that. And I, God, I, I really, as much, I admire Ridley Scott as a filmmaker. He's one of the greats and has made so many films that I absolutely adore. I hope he never makes another alien movie because if he sets it up that David ends up as being the uh, space jockey at the beginning that they find in the derelict ship in the first alien film, I'm going to fucking scream. <laughs> I can't remember who it was. A friend of mine was talking about how like they, their, their theory is that, you know, really Scott made the first alien and, you know, it was it was you know a revelation. And then James Cameron comes along and makes aliens. And, and it was like Ridley Scott was like, wait, wait a minute. Who's this guy who came in and took this from me? And then all these years later, he's like, I'm going to make sure everybody understands that I'm the one who really, it's like, no, man, you're not. Yeah. It's bigger than you, man. Cameron makes it like when he makes the, his version of it, he decides, cause he didn't have to bring Ripley back, but he's like, no, she's going to be here. And he injects all the humanity into, into that aspect of the story. Right. I'm not saying that she, 
you know, there's not there's humanity in the first one, but the characters are not all fully fleshed out in the first one. You know, there yeah. many of them are just there to get eaten, and the actors and the performances elevate all of that. Whereas Ridley Scott, he's so much less interested in humanity. He only wants his only the only characters he's interested in are the robots. <laughs> exactly. He, with these movies, he wanted to tell robot stories, which is perfectly fine. It's just tying everything back to David as they seem to be going with the arc of it after Covenant. I mean, it, it just kind of rubbed me the wrong way. I mean, as a fan, I like the idea of the aliens being something more ancient, something that's it, it predates humanity. And unknowable. This is the terror in space that you are never going to understand, and you need to get as far away from as possible. That's all there is to it. <laughs> yeah. And even the idea of that the engineers created the aliens, I'm perfectly okay with that. You just don't have to, as long as you don't explain every little element of it, because you keep certain things a mystery. Or explain it poorly. <laughs> well, yeah, there is that. Right. And even when it comes to the Alien versus Predator films, I mean, again, we seem to be so beholden to Whalen Utani. It's just like, come on, guys, we can have, like you said, we can have alien stories that have nothing to do with Whalen Utani, with Ripley, with any of the droids, none of that stuff. We could be completely in a different part of the galaxy and have an alien story and we should be able to do that but for whatever reason it just like we have to keep putting it into this timeline somehow and it's like no 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 just it's like it's the star wars thing where it's just like oh somehow we have to tie a fucking skywalker into this it's almost like fan servicey in a way i don't hate fan service but it but i, I also don't I don't feel any need to be imprisoned by it, you know, yeah. and, and that's and that's that's what it is. You know, you'll have these little and yes, little nods and stuff like that can be cute, but other times they can just be unnecessary or destructive. Yeah, I mean, you, you can use elements of Wayland yutani to build a world because it's established they're a very big company. But literally, if you're going to do an Alien versus Predator film, one, I have no idea why they didn't just set it in the future because that's what everybody was asking for. And you really didn't have to include anything more uh, overt than a Wayland yutani mug, you know? <laughs> exactly. We don't have to see Mr. Utani or Mr. – I mean, we get Mr. Utani in the second one. We get Mr. Wayland in the first one. I was like, oh, God – and I guess that goes for keeping uh, Lance Henriksen in the films, but sure. didn't really need it. Didn't need it. I love you, Lance, but but he's already in the movie. Right? <laughs> if you're talking about part three, it's like it's like you know, it, it's one of those things. Like, oh, okay, it, it, yeah, you designed him and you made him look just like you. For for what again? <laughs> right, you made him look like younger you. I guess too, it would have hubris, been. you know? Yeah. Yeah, very much hubris. I guess I don't know why. Okay, we'll we'll talk more about Prometheus in the second half of the show. Let me just sure, say this one sorry. real quick. I always like the biblical. You know, I talked about how they port into Father as part of the Bible. I I don't know if this is true or not, but I like the idea of. I read an article where it was um, talking about how people keep asking Ripley who she is or what she is, and it felt very Peter to me because she kind of denies it, uh, herself three times until she mm. finally 
gets asked, who are you by Purvis? And then she says, I'm the monster's mother. And that's like the truest answer that she can possibly give. She gives an answer at one point that she's Ellen Ripley, you know, Lieutenant First Class. And Call calls her on it and says like, hey, you died 200 years ago. But yeah, when she finally says, I'm the monster's mother, it's like, okay, now you finally, you're there. You have finally accepted who you are. And thus she can start building an identity of her own. And escape this place. (laughs) I do love that final line, which lived through the entire thing of, I'm a stranger here myself. Love that line, and I love that, yeah, this version of Ripley has never been to Earth. And the version of Ripley that we saw in the very first movie, Ellen Ripley, I don't know if she's ever been to Earth. I mean, who knows at that point? Well, is she on Earth in Aliens, though? No, she's in a space station. Is she, is she in a space station, though? At, she's in the space station at the beginning. They don't. I don't think they define it, but I, I believe, uh, in the expanded, I believe they said she stayed on Gateway. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that would make sense because there's nothing for her there. Yeah, I think her daughter is on Earth and she died on Earth uh, just a few years before Ellen was found. That was another thing I got shit for, by the way, when I was talking about Alien 3, is I kept talking about, like, fairy tales and, you know, how she's kind of like Snow White. And then you've got, like, uh, at one point, there's a framing of her in Alien 3 where there's seven prisoners. I was like, oh, she's like Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. And somebody somebody was just like, hey, man, quit trying to put a fucking fairy tale shit on this. And I'm like, oh, you know, well, fuck you. That was so fucking apparent. I'm like, in in Aliens, they call her Snow White at one point. Yeah, I mean, they were playing. They were playing with fairy tale motifs. God damn it! I got no, I got no time for people with no imagination. I mean, the alien queen could so be maleficent, and this whole idea of her being Sleeping Beauty, and like here again, she is waking up two hundred years ago. They literally refer to the alien. They literally refer to the alien as a dragon. <laughs> I mean, she she is Sleeping Beauty. She wakes up at the beginning of almost every movie. <laughs> She wakes up either from being in hypersleep, I think in what, one, two, three, and in this one she wakes up from basically being being born, being cloned. Right. Yeah. I don't Uh. know why they cut that moment of her grabbing one of the arms of the doctor. I thought that was a good scene. I was surprised that that was cut because when, you know, I was watching it and I put the the marker thing on and then I was like, oh, I thought that was in the movie. (laughs) And well, and it's 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 a great scene because it just again it establishes very early on that she's not right, that she is deadly, and even when unconscious, she has these reactions to attack like an alien. And to me, it also called back to like the part in in part three when the doctor goes to give her the shot and she just wakes up and grabs his arm real quick, mm. or even the way she you know in the novelization of Aliens, the way she interacts with the nurse after she wakes up, it's all this very. When she when she wakes up, she's usually it always feels like she's a little more aggressive. <laughs> she's not a morning person by any stretch. Right, exactly. But also just like you need to get away from me. <laughs> well, every time she wakes up, something terrible's happened well, to right. her, you know? Well, that's that's the other that's the <laughs> other great line. It's like I'm used to be afraid to sleep because I'd always have nightmares, but now I'm not because when I wake up it's always worse. I do really like too, there was a, a few articles that I read, of course. 
the modern Prometheus Frankenstein, they talk a lot about Frankenstein, and especially with this one, because of the way that the doctors are these kind of mad scientists, and they make these creatures, you know, they're basically remaking Ripley. And I love so much that somebody pointed out that uh, the Brad Dorf character, you know, they keep him alive till the end, and then when the baby dispatches him, that the baby bites his brain out, basically. It's just like <laughs> taking care of the mad scientist by removing that brain that thought up all of this madness that they have. And this one is so great, too, with this whole idea of the alien mother giving birth to this baby and this weird post-birth abortion that they basically <laughs> give to the baby. And when you see the look on Ripley's face that she's super she's sad that this baby well, she's, she's has to be destroyed. Yeah. <laughs> A key element of Ripley's characterization from Aliens Forward is the, her as mother. Mm-hmm. And this is her essentially killing a child. Her own killing child. her child. Yeah, her grandchild, but you know, still her child. And she's got her surrogate daughter. Now she's got Call, at least. But again, Call's not human and she's not human. So I guess they're actually kind of a perfect mother-daughter. And this one won't hopefully die unexpectedly at the beginning of a next sequel. The original ending, just for folks at home, was like not only were they carrying the bodies of these poor mining workers who, you know, they're the, the proletariat getting fucked over by this capitalist system. Sorry to throw in a little Marxism for you, but they were also transporting these harvesters. And at the end, they get in one of these harvesters and end up, you know, fighting the baby alien that way. And the baby alien was what had like six legs. It was more like a spider than it was. Well, no, it, it- it yeah. had wings. It had wings. wings that's right. It, towards the end, it broke out and it had wings. And it turns into this aerial battle. And I was thinking about that earlier when you were talking about like the insect nature of the monster and, and how it's played up in this movie. And it's like, you know, maybe that's what they, you know, Whedon was going for in the original draft. But it's like, there's really no suggestion, you know, from either one of these species that have now intermingled that wings would show up. <laughs> kind of reminded me of the end of Splice, you know, the the Vincenzo Natale film, but it also reminded me more of the end of Aliens when Sigourney gets into the um the 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 big body mech suit, uh, basically, you know, the <laughs> the suits that they had in um the novelization the novel of Starship Troopers. That to me is what the movie is more than anything is you know, him trying to take it back to Aliens, him trying to like even that one part where it's like when Jonner wants to ditch the one guy and says, no offense. And he, you know, he gives him the finger and says, none taken. I like a lot of the dialogue that we have in alien resurrection, but to me, the best dialogue is still in aliens. You know, I, that movie is so fucking quotable. You, you, I mean, you know, the line <laughs> and it's just, and, and there, and it's amazing to me that it, it's, it was endlessly quotable dialogue. And it's dialogue that is so distinct to those individual characters. You know, you know who said what when you re- when you quote that or when you're thinking about that. And some of those people aren't even on the screen for that long. But it just becomes, it, you know, it, it is so perfectly individualized. And that's what makes that movie so strong. Like, well, one of many things that makes it so strong. Yeah, we can quote Hudson. We can quote Hicks. We can quote Vasquez. Right. We can quote so many of these people. I I can't really quote Jonner that much or Christy that much or Vries that much. You know, like you quoted Vries, you quoted the line, (laughs) but that that's about it. Well, it's kind of it's kind of awkward to try to say I am not the man with whom to fuck. 
Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, that, that's like, that to me feels like classic early Whedon dialogue. It is. Before he'd done like 10 years of television, it was like, okay, yeah, that's just a lot to, there's, there's no reason to put anybody through that. I mean, I do like the, I mainly just hurt people. I mean, yeah, Johnner does have the best lines, yeah, I have to say. That's a, that's, that's a solid line for sure. But again, it's not, there's nothing in there. Or, and Ripley has some good lines too. It just doesn't have the magic of that second movie, no. or even the fir- or even the first movie for that matter. But although in the first movie, it feels again going back to I think what I said before, like I feel like you know that's a, an example of just flawless casting. Oh fuck and, yeah! You, you know you and you've got the and, and I have to imagine that much of that dialogue was not even written. Well, especially since they were using that Altman technique of the overlapping dialogue and everything, they they were just it felt like they were just riffing. Right. Right, and it just and it, and it comes out totally natural, completely believable. Like this is a a ship full of factory workers that you know, and and this is how every single one of them would talk. There was an article from just uh, la- uh, last month where they were talking that originally <laughs> Altman was supposed to direct Alien, and I just, I mean, some of those weird, like you know, hey, yeah, we almost had this guy, we almost had this guy. It's just like. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Cause it's another one like reading about who might have directed Alien Resurrection. And you're just like, wow, these are some really interesting choices that you had here. I'm glad that it went with Junet. And, um, I think Junet getting burned by this movie so much helped him make other things. I mean, what wasn't his follow up to this? His follow up was Amelie. Yeah. That, that's yeah. the thing. So I'm watching this, and, and my wife is like, "What? Well, what did this guy do? Do?" Or she said something like that. I go, the, "His next movie was like, I don't know, one of the best movies of that year." <laughs> I saw a very long engagement. I haven't seen Mick Max, and I haven't seen what, what's the other one that he did, uh, the young and prodigious T.S. Bivet. Yeah, I haven't seen that either. But apparently, he's got a movie that might be going direct to Netflix uh, this year. Big Bug. Oh, so another alien film. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> it's, it's all about that bug at the beginning who gets squashed. <laughs> it comes back for revenge. It was so interesting. Also, in one of the, the behind the scenes, when the one, I think it was the storyboard artist who was like, Janae saw himself as like a hired hand mm. or that he was, he was, this movie was basically him just making a commercial, like a really long commercial. If that's the case, and you know, I you know I have my own feelings about this movie, but I, I'm not going to take anything away from him. I, I I feel like that's more. It just felt. I don't know if he meant it that way, but that felt more limiting than than I saw it. I'm like, no, he he came to play. I think it's one of those things where he when he he initially came in, it was with the idea, I'm just going to go along. I'm going to do what they want me to do. Where I'm going to make an American movie, and then he realized that they the the producers and the people behind it. They wanted him to play. They wanted him to bring his own thing to it. So he brought it in. But I, I don't think he did it in a aggressive, this is how we are going to do it. I think it was just happy. He was happy he had the opportunity to inject a little bit of that weirdness in there. From everything that you hear in the commentaries and stuff, it does not sound like it was a bad shoot at all. It sounds like they all had a great time. I mean, the underwater stuff was scary and challenging, sure. but. That also them filming that first did really bring them all together, yeah, and it's a perfect way to actually uh, schedule that kind of shoot. You know, because could you imagine going through you know weeks and weeks of filming, knowing you have this uh, terrible, terrible thing ahead of you? Well, and if one of them died, then they could have replaced them right away exactly. without having shot the rest of the film. Yep, or if they refuse to be in the scene, it's it's why uh, uh, Troma sh- uh, shoots all the nude stuff first. 
that whole thing I never knew that about um, Kim Flowers Hillard that whole thing where Sigourney Weaver sees her outfit and says I want that <laughs> and so when Hillard is in the water she's wearing the outfit that eventually they would redo for Sigourney Weaver Funny. and I think that's one of the reasons why she happens to be the last one in the water and ends up being killed in that Could scene be. but yeah poor kim flowers i was looking at her filmography i was just like what else has she done oh not a whole lot yeah but it's like i liked her in the film she she uh, was in two other things including the in a small small role in fear and loathing in las vegas and then that's it her career ended in 1998 hopefully she's doing well what was your thoughts? Because this, I remember this being a very divisive point at the time of its release and still continued. The look and the presentation of the newborn. I like the newborn. I was reading one review that talked about how the newborn had a beer belly. Yeah. Well, well, well they talked about that Janae was insistent that it had genitals. Mm-hmm. Right. Male and, and- female. And male and female, and they did that. And I love what they what he he said. He goes even even he said something like even for a Frenchman, this is too much. And then they had to digitally erase them. <laughs> yeah, I think it was Al- Alec Gillis saying it's like you know we could have just made a, 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 a an appliance to cover it, and it probably would have been cheaper than you going through and digitally removing it. The way that it walks, it leads with its genitals too. You know, like it's not necessarily the belly that we're seeing; it's the genitals that it's leading with. Yeah, because of the change, you don't, that's not clear. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. See, I always looked at it more like um, how sometimes a baby will have a protruding stomach. And it's, it's again, it's, it's that very sort of malformed infant quality that the thing has. And I remember a lot of people talking about how it was so far apart from a Giger design. And it's interesting that if you look at the various concept art they came up with it, originally they were keeping with something that was decidedly more Giger-esque. Yeah, I never felt that way. I never, I think it, for, for me, it was always, it was such a shock. And I, I have to assume that this, you know, I'm not the only one who felt that way. It was just such a, and they talk about this a little on the commentary too. It was just such a shock to suddenly be dealing with a monster that had eyes. Yeah. And that was so far afield from anything that the franchise had done before. I mean, when you see the queen, it makes sense. It's a bigger version of the alien. It still fits, but the eyes definitely put it into something else. But I could, I could see why Janae wanted the eyes because he wanted this thing to emote. He wanted to show its emotions. It's, 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 its own little journey. And it's hard to do without, with something that has no eyes. With the alien, you get this almost like an exoskeleton over its head. But if you took that away, I want to say in the uh, going back to the some of the early Giger concepts that it does have kind of a skull face. So I was like, I'm okay with it having a skull face. But yeah, to your point, it does have eyes, but they're they're pretty eyes, and yeah, it makes you feel for it. I mean, and that's what we have to do. Unsettling isn't the right word. It was just so not what I'm used to. Like these are killing machines that, and that's all they've ever been. Right. And so all of a sudden now we're like, hold on, I'm supposed to, and, and, and I'm not going to, and I'm just going to fully admit they're successful. Like it's kind of painful to watch that thing die. <laughs> like I said, they're totally successful in the sense 
I think it, I can't remember who it was. And if I read this or if I said it or somebody was complaining when we first watched it, like, and then this thing's got these puppy dog eyes for God's it sake. Does. <laughs> you know, like, it's supposed to be, uh, it's supposed to be, uh, uh this horrible monster, <laughs> but you know, that's what they wanted to go with. And again, it's, it speaks to what we were talking about, the subversion of expectations. And I don't necessarily know if they were going actively out to subvert. This is just where Junet's sensibilities lied. And I, I do like what we see with this thing because so much of the initial gear design of the, of the creatures is in keeping with his biomechanical aesthetic, you know, that blend of flesh and metal. And what we have with this, with this mutation that's coming from the cloning process is something that's all flesh. And it's something that's different than anything we'd ever seen. Now, do, do we need, would we need to, uh, to continue with that design to carry the franchise forward? No, but as a one-off, and again, just kind of speaking about something that is other, something that is beyond our perception, something that is alien, I think it fits very well into that. It's a powerful mix of something you're, you're trying, you know, it's trying to get you to be sympathetic to it but it's absolutely grotesque <laughs> exactly well and that's the thing is when it's making those noises and going up to its mother and you think that oh this is going to be a loving scene and then it rears back and suddenly becomes ugly and smashes her face off and it's just like whoa okay this is not to be trifled with because at first you're just like oh you know it's a beautiful beautiful butterfly <laughs> but no <laughs> like, the mother's just gonna kill this thing <laughs> It's absolutely terrifying. Yeah. And, um, oh, I never knew until I was watching the credits the other day that Archie Han, one of the guys from Phantom of the Paradise, who's in the Juicy Fruits, uh, he does part of the voices for the alien. Really? So I never knew that Han had a whole career after acting in front of the camera. He does a ton of voiceover work. And yeah, he was making those noises of the baby. He is one of two people credited for that. And those noises, I have to say, I mean, I think that Alien Resurrection is really put together well. I mentioned the music before, and I love that, that part of the making of where they're talking about, here's some of the weird sounds that we came up with for this movie. Mm. I was like, wow, that's really neat. Who would have thought to do that? And those things play into it really well. I mean, in each of the Alien scores – is really well done. You know, I, I make fun of Horner sometimes because there are parts of Aliens that sounds exactly like Wrath of Khan. Oh, yeah. But but it's a good score, especially that beginning when uh, the um, machine comes in and it's looking around and, and Ripley's in the cryo chamber. That kind of like da, 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 music that they have is beautiful stuff. And, of course, nobody beats the Jerry Goldsmith score from the original. And, God, I mean – to use those parts of it for that trailer, that trailer's still the, one of the scariest things I've ever seen. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, well, that's, that's the other, it just takes me back to Prometheus and how that trailer was, you know, they used the, they used the original sound effects from the 79 version. I'm like, oh man, I'm so on board for this. <laughs> Just a heartbreaker. <laughs> we forget how important sound is sometimes. Like, I think one of the most successful things to talk about another franchise, one of the most successful things that they do in uh, The Mandalorian is to reuse or replicate the sounds from the original Star Wars to the point where sometimes it feels like they're actually sampling lines from the original Star Wars when it comes to some of the uh, things that the stormtroopers say. And that that brings you back into that. That's one of those major uh, member 
blueberries for me is when I hear those things, I'm just like, oh, that sound, that sound is beautiful. And yeah, the, the, the sound design on something like this and, and the, the rest of the Aliens franchise, wow, they, they can do a really good job of, of setting that tone. All right, guys, let's go ahead and we're going to take a break and we're going to play a trio of interviews. First up, we're going to hear from Christy, Gary Dorden. After that, we'll hear from Purvis, who's played by Leland Orser. And last but not least, we'll hear from the assistant director and special effects maestro, Pitoff. And we'll be back with all of those right after these brief messages. Do you like movies? Do you like bids? Do you bathe in raw meat? Do you dance under the fiery sky of Ra, daisies threaded through your Manchester mane? Foolish question. Yes, we all do. But do you do it listening to the podcast from the After Movie Diner? If not, then you're missing out, and you may or may not spend eternity in insufferable torment wedged between Simon Cowell and Piers Morgan in an elevator that smells of death. The After Movie Diner is a website dedicated to movies. New, old, large, small, and of every genre. There are written reviews, interviews with the famous and interesting, and a weekly podcast with comedy, reviews, interviews, a variety of fascinating and flatulent co-hosts, and music to tap your toe to. So why aren't you on board? Get there or miss out on the podcasting sensation of a generation, one that feels like being slightly tongued by an over-enthusiastic cocker spaniel. Find us on iTunes, Spreaker, Stitcher, TalkShoe, and over at AfterMovieDiner.com. I know you know who I'm talking about. It's that guy. Yeah, yeah, with the eyebrows, he's, right? He's in a yeah, million movies. Yeah, the bushy movies. eyebrows. Sometimes they're bushy, but he also sometimes have a mustache. Yeah, well, that, but, but he shaved. Well, he, no, he didn't. You know who I'm talking about. You see, you've seen this, him in a million movies. We just saw him in that one thing. Yeah, he looks like a pug. Listen to me, Chris Gore, and Anthony Ray Bench on the Film Threat Podcast. You got questions. Sometimes we have the answers. I'm Chris Cooling from Forgotten TV, and you're listening to The Projection Booth, the ultimate movie podcast. You like classic movies, how about classic TV? Over at Forgotten TV, I've covered everything from obscure Saturday morning TV to short-lived shows like Otherworld, The Phoenix, The Highwayman, and Cliffhangers. You can find the show over at Forgotten.tv or at all the usual podcast places. I hope you'll join me soon at Forgotten TV. This is Adam Spiegelman from the Cult Movie Podcast, proudly resents, and you listen to my favorite movie podcast, The Projection Booth. I know, it's messed up, right? Hey folks, welcome to the interview portion of the show. First up, we're going to hear from the man that played Christy, that is Gary Dorden. By the time this comes out, a new movie starring Mr. Dorden will be available. It's called Redemption Day. It is available on all streaming platforms that are worth your time. Now enjoy this interview. Where were you at in your career when you got the gig for Alien Resurrection? I had just broken up with my girlfriend, and I was in a mess. Uh, (laughs) I kind of got kicked out of New York kicked out of my band and it was a mess for me. And so I got to, when I got to Los Angeles, I was just a wreck and they called me for the audition and I went in there and just brought all of that angst with me in the room. And they were like, we love it. Hire him. <laughs> I was, I just went out of that. I didn't even, uh, they, they, my agent called me. He's like, Gary, where did you go? They're looking for you in the hallway. Cause after I went and did my thing in the room, I just left. I was so full of whatever I was bringing into the room. But they chased me down the hallway, as my agent told me, looking for me to try to, 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 to tell me that they, they wanted me for the role. 
that was a great time for me because I was having such a hard time in New York because I was, I guess, you know, you go through transitions in life and that was one of those transitions. I was playing with the band in New York, doing well, but I was, I was toying with moving out to Los Angeles and spending more time out there to follow through with my acting uh, endeavors and uh, my aspirations. I was on the fence and that film kind of pushed me over to go, this is what you need to be doing and don't worry about the band. It's such a strong ensemble piece. It must have been kind of nice to have that support of the other actors as well. It was. I mean, Ron Perlman, I always look to because he, he really made me laugh on set. He's actually as strong as a character actor he is. He's such a very, very funny guy. And he, he, he makes the day go by quick. Sigourney Weaver is just awesome. She is so full of power and grace. And she was very supportive with me. And I got to know uh, Winona on the set there. I had not, not known her before. And she's just like she suggests to be. She's, she has a, sh- a shy demeanor, very soft-spoken, but she's super sweet, a super sweetheart. And uh, I just had a, a, a great time with that ensemble. Most of all, getting to know Jean-Pierre Genet, even though at that time he didn't speak much English and my French was non-existent. We still, you know, we still managed to get through the production and uh, uh, taking great direction from him because he is uh, one of the greats, a great visual director. So uh, I was I just was was pushed right into the deep end of the pool there. Literally, actually, we did a two week underwater scene that lasted for two weeks. And when you're in underwater for 12 to 15 hours a day, I think I started to grow gills. And it was fantastic because you started being more comfortable under the water than you are when they ask you to come up for a lunch break. So I stayed down there. And we just stayed down there all day. And they would give us directions with a speaker underwater because sound travels faster underwater, which is something that you don't realize when you're a human being. But when you're underwater, you can hear better because of sonar. So it was interesting. It was, it was a great shoot. And it was great to be introduced into the art of blockbuster filmmaking with that film with that franchise. Recently, I've seen the documentary that they've just done about Alien. The name eludes me, but it's mostly about how they crafted the first Alien and and working with Geiger. And it was very, very interesting. It's super, super informative. And I've always loved Ridley Scott. Every one of his films I love. So it was great to see this film, and I feel very proud to be a part of that franchise. I don't imagine that that was your own hair. Yeah, it was. We got some extensions to make it a little bit longer because I think my hair is just maybe two inches, three inches shorter than that. But it was my locks. Yeah. Now, the thing was, is that the funny thing was, is that I was doing some rules here and there because at that time it was I was really early on for men who had locks. There was nobody in sports that had locks and not one person. And I was the only guy on TV with locks at the time. I think Lenny Kravitz was out with his album. So he was the only guy in rock and roll with locks. So it was, uh, you know, it was a really early time for that type of look. And I did that film. And then right after that film, I think I went off to Egypt and I cut off my hair off. So I came back for the premiere with a bald head. And the director, John Pierre, looked at me like, Gary, what did you do? Because he realized that the film was going to be such a big hit. And he knew that it was going to be so good for my career. But I changed all of that. I mean, I had meetings lined up with all the major directors. <laughs> and I walked in with a bald head. No one recognized me. No one knew who I was. <laughs> I didn't work again after Alien for another year and a half. You're living in a, yeah. Did Janae direct you through an interpreter or more through like body language? 
Yeah, it was his interpreter name is Christine. And he also directed me through body language. Now, since I have been living in Paris for about eight years, and I live actually around the corner from his office in Montmartre, and I've, I've sit to have spent some time with him um, in Paris, and his English is, is better than my French, I have to say. Now, but at the time, he was hardly speaking a word. So he said that you went for, what, a year and a half without getting a gig after that one? Yeah, it was about a year and a half until I worked again. And after that, I was able to do things that I had because I had locks for, I don't know, over a decade. Yeah. And so when I when I cut my hair, it took me a while to, to find my place in the industry again. But then afterwards, I was able to do series like uh, uh, play Malcolm X for for uh, Terrence, uh, Terrence Howard's uh, uh, Muhammad Ali. We did, a, we did a, a TV film together and things like that that I wouldn't have done with locks. So it kind of opened me up later on. But at the time, you know, I think the industry had a hard enough time trying to figure out what to do with me as it were. And I was just trying to kick my way around the industry, trying to figure out what I would be best doing. So it took a while. It took a while after that. But I I got, you know, I've been touch and go with the industry as it is. It's a good lesson. (laughs) How did you make ends meet? Yeah. I, I, I had a baby on the way, too. So. My daughter Nyla was was being born, and uh, I was just trying to, uh, I was just being an artist, you know, doing odd jobs, uh, kicking around as a musician, doing what I could. I just, you know, by any means necessary, I just kept it going. I'd sell guitars. (laughs) I was doing all sorts of odd jobs, man. Tell me about Redemption Day, and tell me about the making of that. And Did you shoot it all pre-COVID? Yes. Redemption Day was shot all pre-COVID. And shot all entirely in Morocco, aside from a few exteriors. I got the script uh, through a rep of mine, and I was immediately interested because it seemed like I could bring more to just a, some kind of an action hero thing that we've seen before. I wanted to put some some kind of dimension to the character, and I talked to the director about putting more of the PTSD issue there with that's what his driving, not his driving force to get to have him get back into it. But part of his issue, what drives him to, to have struggled through some of these, these places in his life with trying to go back into society and then subsequently going back in the field. Um, this is something that a, a great deal of service men and women deal with. And I wanted to put that into focus because all too often we see action films and the hero is just unflappable and it's just, you know, indomitable. It's, it's a big hero and it does everything right and gets the bad guys and people go home and everyone's happy. But I wanted to put more of a human frail thing in there somewhere that he makes mistakes and that he's coming from the past and he's maybe done some things or had some things he's experienced that, that don't sit well with him, that, that he can't sleep through. And, there's uh, friends of mine that I've been through the service industry, Navy SEALs and Marines that I've known over the years. So I've sort of crafted the character and taken pieces of them to fill him out. And uh, hopefully that some of that comes across on screen as well. And it was really interesting to shoot in Morocco for that because we were, you know, it's not like we're shooting in Nevada or somewhere. We're shooting in a beautiful place, but it's also very easy to get into a character over there. You know, you've been doing this for over 30 years now, and I'm curious what your method is to get into a character. You talked about taking pieces from people that you knew. 
are you able to do that for everything that you do, or how do you go about kind of crafting who you're going to be on screen? Mostly I could do that with a, a lot of the, the characters. The power of observation is is is, is really necessary with, uh, with crafting. That's something that I took from watching Sam Jackson or watching Robert De Niro, is them, them observing people in their life situations. You have to put someone who's in a mental health facility and just go and spend some time there and really start to pick out, you know, human qualities and characteristics of, of the people that you're playing. And that really helps craft the character. It transcends, it comes across on screen, I think, mostly. So I definitely do try to do that. I try to interview people as much as possible. I try to get as much physical activity in there. And I and for this film particularly, we didn't have that much time. I didn't have, I had about two months, three months of prep work to, to be able to do that. Usually when you're doing a big budget film, they'll give you six to eight to nine months to prepare and I'll give you a team. But I had none of that. So I had to do a great deal of uh, that on my own. So I called up all of the people that I knew and just had discussions with them about how they handle themselves about higher ups, about how they handle themselves. How do they stand? How do, what are they working with firearms? And I started working with different firearms training places and, and just getting myself more comfortable. You, you want it to be fluid. You know, and so some of that we ended up using and some of the stuff that, you know, I was really working hard at may have ended up on the editing room floor, but at least given an effort because, you know, that's, that's what the craft is about. And that's the love of it. That's the love that you have for the craft is the research and to, to, to take every day. There was a, a film that I had to do. Where I had to play uh, George Jackson prisoner for 30 years. That was tough because they wanted to put me up in a nice bed and breakfast up there in the Bay Area. Well, no, it was when we were actually in shooting in Nevada, Reno. We were shooting in Reno, and, it, and I was in this nice bed and breakfast, but I had to go shoot to prison every day in, in the, uh, on the ward where they, uh, they do lethal injection in, in those cells. That's where we were shooting. After the first day there, I said, I'll just have to go and stay at like a, a shitty motel just because I'm, I'm coming in here, and it's just not just your normal job that I'm doing. It's really... You know, to, to, to stay in that place, I'm going to have to just be in a certain amount of solitude. And I also had to do certain cleansing rituals to cleanse that prison off of me because there's a lot of dark spiritual energy in there. And so I really worked hard at trying to maintain. And I'm, I don't consider myself a, uh, a method actor at all. But in that, for that particular role, particular role, I felt that I needed to maintain a sense of, uh, uh, just a sense of continuity throughout my performance. It was really important for me to maintain that, to not go off and have a great lunch with the crew. And I just really needed to to maintain, to keep his accent, to keep, I kept on listening to records of him speaking uh, to get his cadence of his voice. And I kept on looking at videos of, of his mannerisms. Every time we got a break, we would uh, cut, I would roll back to my recently, my resources. I just tried my best to, the craft, because when you're working with somebody who's a historical figure, it depends on what kind of actor you are, but uh, most actors want to get it right, you know? If you're working with somebody who's been on tape, that's a historical figure who's been, we have record of, you, you, you want to get it right, you know? you know? And short of being an impersonation, you want to kind of get the, the whole thing right. And that film was particularly hard just because uh, there was one part where I got locked in the, uh, the cell, the, the, the cell, the uh, the, the, the things that opened the door, it broke the mechanism. So I got locked in the cell for about three hours. 
And the whole crew was freaking out, trying to get me out of there. But I was actually, by that time, I was content because I had been in the cell for so long and I had been working with his character and reading his books and doing all of these things. So I was already fluid with it, you know. I wasn't like, get out of here. I have to get my makeup done. <laughs> and I was like, let's keep rolling and see what we come up with. And that's the kind of steps that I like, is the spontaneity and uh, of director and a writer willing to bend the rules a little bit and bring something new. You never know what you can get. Go out and pick a, a handheld camera and shoot some other things. That's the kind of creation that I like. That's why I'm involved. That's why I like this, you know, this method of storytelling. It's because of those, those, those chances. I've got one slightly annoying question for you, but it came up while we were talking about uh, alien resurrection on the show. Why didn't you just kick that alien off your boot? <laughs> I think what Jean-Pierre Genet was going for was he had an effect in mind and uh, it changed because the budget wouldn't allow him to complete it. So we had switched to the, um, to the, the aliens shooting acid in my eye because when we were shooting another scene on another day, they were putting some smoke coming out of my gun. And when they were putting the smoke coming out of my gun, it's something that they spray into the barrel of the gun. And the guy was spraying it into the barrel of the gun and sprayed it right in my eye. And I just went down like a, a load of bricks. I just went down and I was just wriggling in pain on the floor. And he saw that. And that's when he decided to change the script to be me up in a ladder getting shot with acid in my eye. And that's sort of what I was just talking about as far as the spontaneity and the willingness to be in the moment. And it, and. But that's a great question because for me, I, I, I wanted to do a few things, but I think for his effect, he was trying to, <laughs> he was trying to craft a, a perfect shot that he would, he would pan back and show that just us up on that apparatus with an alien hanging off my foot, you know? So I think I had to play along with it and just believe that the alien had incapacitated me so severely throughout my nervous system that I just could not move. And the only thing that I could do was just cut myself free, you know, because I, the acid had hit my nervous system. So that's what I played it for. You know, to be honest with you, when I started the film, I, I was like probably buck 60 and, and Jean-Pierre Genet like went, Gary, you got to gain some weight, man. You can't look, you don't look like you can carry a guy on your back throughout half the film. So <laughs> go, go bulk up. <laughs> so I just started eating and lifting and eating and lifting. And uh, before that, I was any guy. It was one of the best experiences of my life. I really I put a little mark up there and just go, yeah, that was that was fun times, man. It was like doing something you love. And I was on the set every day, even when I wasn't shooting, just seeing how Darius Kanji would light. He's a scientist. And we were just around so many technical geniuses that I just was like a kid in a candy store. I'm a film buff myself, so I've seen all of Darius's work, and it was just great to be. And, and City of the Lost Children was my favorite film the years prior, right before Alien Resurrection. So I was a fanboy when I got on the set. From the Alien franchise, Jean-Pierre Genet's work with Carol, you know, Sigourney's work, you know, being one of the first heroines that we've seen on film. And I was just a fanboy, big time. Yeah, I loved his delicatessen so much. The first time I saw that, it just blew me away. 
What a, what a thing to do with wide-angle lenses. He's magnificent. The guy is the, the genius. What are you working on now other than promoting Redemption Day? Uh, I'm in Atlanta right now uh, filming a couple of episodes of a show called uh, First Wives Club based off of the film with an amazing comedian, a stand-up comedian named Michelle Bouteau. Uh, the songstress uh, Jill Scott is also on the show. So I'm just having a magnificent time laughing through the beginning of 2021 because these women make me laugh. They are so funny. It's a comedy. Well, I, actually, when I was on CSI, I used to crack jokes all the time, and they would have to tone me down and tell me that's wrong. And if the serious scene, Gary, could you tone it down? I, if, if I didn't crack the crew up all day, then it wasn't a good day. I was working at it really hard, just making people laugh. Because, you know, one thing I realized is that real cops and real people on crime scenes, they have to laugh all day, too, because they have to work with morbid shit. So they, they have to figure out ways to, you know, get through the day. So I'm hoping for more of that in the years to come, more laughter. Well, Mr. Jordan, thank you so much for your time. This has been terrific. Stay safe down in Atlanta, and good luck with uh, First Wives Club. I look forward to seeing it. Thank you very much. And you stay safe as well. Up next, you're going to hear from Purvis, that is Mr. Leland Orser, who shares a little bit about his career and how it was working on Alien Resurrection. I have been a, uh, a fan of your work since the first time I put a name to your face, and I think that was uh, Seven. That was my first movie, my first real movie. It was an unusual thing. I think the role originally called for an older, overweight like at the time I was considerably younger, you know, middle-aged guy. There was a casting director at the time who's still out there named Billy Hopkins. And he kind of championed me at that time. And he, anything, and he was doing all the big movies and anything that came across his desk, he would bring me in for whether I was right for it or not. And this was the most unusual ask that I got you know, request to come in and audition for this thing. And um, I resisted big time at first. And then I was reassured that uh, he felt that there was something there that I could do something with. So it was really kind of a, there's no way in the world this is ever going to happen approach to it. I did a screen test for it and the screen test was sent to David Fincher and, um, and it all happened pretty quickly. After that, I was a maitre d' in a nightclub in um, on the Sunset Strip at that time, too. I was working as a Billy called me personally and told me the news. And um, and I was I was actually not happy. I was disturbed. I, I, and, and, I, and I thought, I don't really know if I want to do this. I don't. It was a great acting exercise in the screen test. I thought, do I want to be associated with that content? And that act, and he reassured me. He said, I'm telling you, Leland, do this. Also, quit your job as a maitre d' because your career will, has begun. And um, he said, this will be a, a marker for you, and, and, and things will, will change from here on out because of what you're going to do in this movie. He said that. He had great confidence, and he had great confidence in me, and I'll, I'll, I'll forever be grateful to him for, for starting it because it did start there. 
did I read right that you studied acting in London? I did at a little place called the Drama Studio. It had a sister school in Berkeley. It was a one-year program, which is what drew me to it. And we had all the same advisors and teachers from RADA and Central and um, the you know the other academies and schools, conservatories in London. Like some really extraordinary people teaching us speech and text, uh, how to approach Shakespeare and text. And it was, it was a really a great year of education. I learned a lot. When did you know that acting was the career choice for you? Career is an interesting word. I knew it was something for me and right for me right from the third grade when I played, I played uh, Tiny Tim in the Christmas Carol at my school. And it just um, fit felt so totally right. It felt completely at home. And then, and and I always did. I went to college and I went to a small liberal arts college back East and it wasn't a conservatory and it it really didn't have the strongest uh, department for training somebody to have a career in in the theater and in, in, in film and in entertainment. So like two years in, I realized I was in the wrong place. But I was also very interested in what else the school had to offer in the way of education. And I got interested in my education and academics for the first time in my life, a little late in the game. And so, um, so I changed my major. And, um, when I, when I, when I finished, I, I, I had been now away from acting for two years. And from the world that I grew up in, that meant now it was time to go out into the world and get, serious and and get a real job and that acting wasn't really a consideration. It wasn't really something that people who came from where I came from did. I had no family member who had ever done that and who who would have shown a light of the way for me. You know, I used all the career counseling and all of that kind of stuff that a school offers you. And I actually landed an offer from a bank to do their training program for international banking i can't fucking add or subtract to save my life and um but but i but i you know i did really well in the interview and um i very quickly realized that that was uh, 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 the, the the wrong thing and found my way back and turned the offer down went to new york city and got into some acting classes surrounded myself with like-minded people and and, and realized that this was something not that i could do but wanted to do and and had to do and really never looked back when you got there and you're doing the acting classes did you start working in like the theater or what was your your way of expressing yourself other than the classes i did the classes and um i did those for a short period of time and then i realized that i needed more than that and that's when i applied to 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 go to school and i felt like i i'd missed a lot of time and i felt like i i needed to catch up quickly which is why i I didn't apply to the standard four-year programs because i thought it'll all be over by that time and you know uh, and and i'm i'm ready to go now i just i know that i need to learn things about how to do this professionally so i went to school in london and then i came back and the moment i got back i started working in the theater and i i really uh worked at the, in the theater a lot i i toured the whole eastern seaboard doing theater in all of the regional theaters on the east coast and that that was formative and and wonderful and incredible when did you decide that you were going to 
make the break and go out to L.A.? You know, I realized that there was only so far I could go and only so much I could do. I lived in a rent-controlled apartment on the Upper West Side, and I love the theater. And uh, the, the theater, I, I hope to always do the theater. I hope to go back to it. But I, but I realized that I, I, I wasn't going to be able to do what I wanted to do in life with the living that I was making on a off-Broadway regional theater, you know, salary. I also was drawn to the world of film and to television, and I, w- I was curious, and I, and I was also confident that there was a place in it for me. So I, I just made the leap. I just got in my, I, I, I got in my car with my cousin and drove across the country and ended up in L.A. and, you know, got here and in, immediately started working in, uh, in television and film, a little film, mostly television, though. Yeah, you did a lot of TV work. I remember you in um, Cheers and X-Files, and then you did a couple episodes of Deep Space Nine, and then you've done so many different iterations of Star Trek since then. Yeah, including playing not a uh, an alien, not a not a creature, not a Romulan. I I've actually played a, a real person in, a, in 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 Star Trek as well. That was a great place for up and coming actors. They were that was like a repertory theater sort of setting. You could do multiple characters on multiple shows because you could hide behind the prosthetics, you know. And 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 it was uh, and you know and it was a good paycheck back then. Going back to your role in Seven. Your character's hysterical, and I'm so curious, how do you get to a place like that, and how do you maintain that, especially because I know that David Fincher's kind of notorious for multiple takes. How do you get in that headspace? I had no idea what they saw in me or why they saw in me, so I was certain it was going to be a, a, a total failure. And so, I, again, like the screen test for it, I, had, I really had nothing to lose. I felt like it was just a one-off in the room in front of a camera, but I also knew that I had to go to a place emotionally that I that I hadn't actually even ever been to in my own life, in my own emotional life. I didn't know how I was going to do that, and and I had to go to that place, a, a virtual psychic, psychotic break. I had to go to that place in front of people, in front of a, a crew of people and actors, and and I thought, how the fuck am I ever going to do that? So I decided one thing I could do was not sleep the night before. So they told me the day that I was going to shoot. I stayed up all night. And that morning I got a call. I was supposed to go in in the afternoon saying your day has your day of shooting has been pushed to tomorrow. So then I thought, fuck, okay, now what do I do? Uh, Do I sleep? But if I sleep, then I'm not going to have done this sleep deprivation prep work that I thought was going to help me. So then I thought, you know what, um, I can't sleep. I'll just stay up again. So I stayed up another night. And then I was really not in a great place, as one can imagine. And so I, was, I wasn't eating because my stomach was all messed up. But I needed to stay awake, so I was drinking a lot of black coffee. I was supposed to be first up that morning, the scene with the interrogation scene with me and Morgan Freeman. So I was drinking a lot of black coffee to keep me awake. And then they said to me, your scene has been pushed to the end of the day. So I had to sit on the steps of my trailer because if I went inside, I would fall asleep. I wasn't really a smoker at the time, but um, I thought, you know, that that should help, too, to kind of fuck things up. So I got a I got a couple of packs of Marlboro Reds. 
So it was caffeine and Marlboro Reds, black coffee and Marlboro Reds. So by the time they brought me on set, I was in a state. And then, as you have correctly observed, there were many, many takes. And then, you know, that's that's sort of where it ended up. But I would not advise that kind of preparation uh, to anybody. That was it. Uh, I I could have gotten there. I could have gotten there without all of that. I now know. I now know. Wow. Yeah, that seems like you could wreck your health by doing that. Oh, I'm, I I did. And then once it was over, and I came home that night, then I couldn't sleep. And you know, and having been through it, then you know, I was I was I was kind of a, a wreck for a few days. But I've since learned as an actor that. You, you don't need to go to those extremes to get what it is that you you need to get. Uh, tough lesson learned. It's funny. The next thing I remember you being in was Escape from L.A., but you had already done so many things just between Seven and Escape from L.A. It seemed like that casting agent was right. It just seemed to like kickstart your career. You seemed to be working all the time after that. That's the way it kind of always was from that moment on. Escape from L.A. was opportunity of a lifetime to work with John Carpenter. And I've, I've been really, really lucky in, in my career to work with these directors that I had read about and, and knew about and watched their work. John Carpenter was such a great guy. Uh, one thing I remember from that was my first fitting for my costume. And they had scheduled me in peter fonda at the same time by accident so peter fonda and i were back to back in this tiny little wardrobe room changing in and out of these costume choices that the costume designer had for us his was a wetsuit so that was pretty that his was a wetsuit that was that was pretty simple but that was kind of neat uh he's a great guy we shot in the coliseum for a week, we did night shoots. and It was a lot of night shoots on that movie, I want to say. And maybe that was my very first introduction to extended night shoots, which are a very interesting element of making films. They take a toll on, on all involved as well. You become night owls. That was a great experience. A great experience. Steve Buscemi was in the movie. And uh, being in the Coliseum was a highlight. We had it all to ourselves. I remember just standing on the 50-yard line and just looking around and going, the things that happened in this place, and we have it to our own. It was pretty pretty cool. The Olympics were there. What was it like working with uh, Jean-Pierre Jeunet in um, Alien Resurrection? So Seven happened first, and then Alien Resurrection happened soon after that. The thing that that I had in common with those two movies was the cinematographer, Darius Kanji. He shot both of those. And I had been, did you ever go to the Lemleys on Sunset? And, uh, oh no, you're, you're not here. You're back east. There was a independent movie house here called the, it was the Lemleys. Um, and then they call it the Sunset Five, I want to say. And now I, I don't even know what it's called. It's certainly not open, but, um, it played all of the art house independent films. And it was, you know, a favorite place to go to. And I remember um, sitting in the theater watching City of Lost Children and turning to whoever I was with and going, this is the kind of movie that I want to be in. This is the kind of filmmakers that I want to work with. And then, you know, and then uh, they gave Jean-Pierre, not Marc Caro, just Jean-Pierre did it by himself, um, Alien Resurrection. 
he brought over eventually brought over like many of his French crew. So it, it, it was uh, predominantly French crew. Ultimately, it didn't start out that way, but it became a, a French crew. And, um, you know, what a visionary it was. They dug that pool on the Fox lot, uh, like 15 feet into the ground and took over an entire soundstage so we could shoot all that underwater stuff. And the creatures, the face huggers, the I mean, to to have watched those movies and then to to walk onto a soundstage and see all of that stuff, you really had to pinch yourself. And working with Sigourney was um, a total blessing. And Ron Perlman and Dominique Pignon, who had been one of the stars of Delicatessen and City of Lost Children. Subsequently, um, I, when I on the Taken movies, um, I worked with I worked in France with a French crew. And I was very used to their system and their rhythm and their and their uh, and and the way they work and and the French the French have got it down. What's so different between their film set and a U.S. film set? There's no lunch. I want to say that we got you know picked up at our hotel at around nine o'clock. So you get a good night's sleep. You could stay out and party. You take it in. You do your hair and your makeup and your wardrobe, and then everybody assembles together to eat a meal together and white and red wine are served at the table. You sit at long tables, the food is served to you, and then you go and shoot for eight hours and that's the day. And there's no meal break. And I love the fact that there's no meal break because a meal break can really disrupt things. It's an hour and then it's kind of an hour to kind of regroup. And I love that everybody has a glass glass of wine before work. It's so civilized. I have to say, your death scene in Alien Resurrection is just one for the books. It is so good. I had a camera down my throat for that. You know, again, that's something that had to be shot over and over and over and over. And like any science fiction film, you got to believe it for the audience to believe it. You have to commit. I think that's the that's what makes good science fiction really good, is that um, there's no question that the actors are believing and feeling everything that they are doing and, and, and experiencing. You can't go halfway just because you're dealing with a big latex creature. You know, you, you gotta go, you gotta go all the way. Even more than the camera going down your throat, the way that you kind of stumble walk over to the guy before you hold his head to you. I love the way that you carry your body in that scene. It's almost like that moment of superhuman strength that happens the alien taking over the body and the body no longer being the body now being piloted by the alien. Let's just put that. The alien is taking over the, the helm. It's very cool. I loved, loved working with all of those people. Loved those days. They were long, grueling days, but we had such a good time together. That's another one where it's just such an amazing cast that is put together. I mean, you you listed off so many great people and just everybody in there from the smallest roles on. I mean, to have Brad Dorf just in that little tiny role, but it's Brad Dorf. I know. And when you look, go back and look at One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and I truly love the first two, Alien and Aliens. I think they're two of the greatest movies ever made. And I was a huge fan of David Fincher's version, which he took over uh, midway through production. I, I know too much about it. I don't feel the same way about the one that I was in, but there's a lot about it visually I, I, I love. I'm very grateful to have been part of the, the series. The first two were fucking incredible. 
and and a great deal of the of what happened in the third one and the concept of what happened in the third one I loved as well. I think there's room for them to do more. You got to go back to the rough basics of, of the first. It created a and and an, an, didn't it an outer space genre? I mean it it started something that that everybody has copied and and tried to replicate who have entered that genre. By the way, I loved Battlestar Galactica just out of nowhere. I loved all 97 episodes of the second Battlestar Galactica. Is that a terrible thing to say? Fucking loved it. What is that like becoming a part of a world that you already love? You know, I, I don't know if you had a love for Star Trek before you became part of Star Trek, but how is it to go into the alien realm and be there with Ripley when you love alien and aliens. You get over that pretty quickly. I wasn't a stalker type fan of any of the, of any of the stuff that I've done. You get over it really quickly because you got to work. You got to go to work. And, and these people that you have seen and watched and, and enjoyed and are all human beings, all who want to create a, a good, product a good piece and um you are working with with them and so you have to do your job and you have to do your job well so i've just been really lucky i was very lucky to work you know to work opposite scorny who's a fucking extraordinary actor you know you try to give as good as you get and uh, you know when the when the bar is high you're you just you you keep trying to reach it and the higher it goes the higher you reach so i feel like the better the people are that you work with the better your work is it brings you to a higher level it's like a it's like a tennis match you know you get the ball gets hit hard to you you're gonna you have to hit it hard back and if you want to keep the rally going i just watched you in very bad things what an incredible movie i had no idea where it was going to go after the first act i could not see the twists and turns yeah that was a good one i met my to be wife on that movie. It didn't happen doing that movie. We, we then re-met a year later. The movie was great working with Peter, who's such an incredible, creative guy with so much energy and so many great ideas, you know, working with, with, the, with all the actors, you know, in the, in the, the groomsmen and, 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 and that group was, was a, was a really, uh, was a really great experience. I loved the script. Um, again, high level all around, everybody working on it. And it was really the precursor to The Hangover, I want to say. The time wasn't right for it, I guess. The humor is so dark. I still do have a lot of people come up to me and tell me how much they love that movie. And a lot of them are women. That's interesting. Yeah, my wife made me turn it off for a little while. I had to watch it when she was out of the room just because the Cameron Diaz yep. character was so shrill. And she was just like, I can't stand yep. it turn her off she was so good it's been years since i watched it we want to watch it with our son who's now an 18 year old and so we, we sort of figure it's time and i don't think he's seen it yet so we want to want to have family movie night and watch very bad things <laughs> when did your son kind of realize like mom and dad are in these things that i can see on tv if i happen to be flipping around always i mean he's grown up on our sets on our sets when you have a kid regardless of what it is that you do at least in our way of parenting you know life becomes about the kid and and and, and about 
the kid's life and, and the kid's day and the kid's achievements and the kid's trials and tribulations. And the whole family focus goes on that. We didn't minimize what it was that we did, but we didn't certainly didn't emphasize it as the most important thing in the house because it he has always been always and always will be the most important thing in the house. He would hear, I think, from friends who would, you know, were aware, but um, pretty unfazed by the whole thing. He grew up coming to the set of ER on the Warner Brothers lot and following the PAs and ADs on um, Big Love out in Santa Clarita. He visited while I was doing one of those Star Treks on the Paramount lot. When I was shooting uh, Berlin Station in, in Europe, we went, did one season in Budapest, and um, he came over and found a job that had nothing to do with, with the show or with entertainment. He had his own internship over there doing something that was completely and totally his own. He, he is his own, uh, his own man, and, um, and we, you know, so that, that success there. I'm trying to think if yeah if you and, and Gene even shared any scenes in that one, but I know for sure that you've worked together since then. You even directed a movie that that you both were in. I'm just curious, how is that working with your wife in a com- uh, professional capacity? We gravitated towards each other when we were shooting scenes that we were both in. There were there were there were group scenes um, that we were both in, and we somehow always ended up taking breaks and talking and we ended up there were other people around but we always ended up being in a group or just the two of us doing a lot of talking together she was so funny and so good at that part playing stern's wife danny stern's wife i want to say we did right before the strike um there was the 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 writer's strike which really hit everybody hard in this town we did a television movie together to sort of you know stow away some Whirl away some nuts because none of us knew how long that was going to take. So we did this TV movie that shot up in Canada that I don't even remember what it was called, or and I'm sure nobody ever saw it, but it, it arrived at the perfect time to do what we needed to do. And then, um, and then I wrote this short, and I did this short, and I did the circuit with the, the festival circuit with this short, and the head of the Sundance Institute said to me, so now what? You've done the short. What do you, what do you want to do next? And, and I, I sort of said, well, what, what do you think? What are my options? And she, she said, you know, your options are to use this as a calling card as a director. And I, I thought, no. And you, you could go to just all the festivals that you want to and meet other short film makers. And I thought, no. And she said, or this is a smaller piece of something bigger and you expand it and tell the rest of the story and make it into a feature. And I said, yes. So I sat down and wrote the the feature version of the short, you know, the first person I showed it to was my wife. And I said, you know, what, what do you think? And she said, you know, if one of my representatives presented me with this script, it's something that I would, that I would want to do that I would kill to do. And yet, there was no possible way that either of us wanted to go down that road together, especially due to the subject matter of the film. Don't know when that changed. I think it changed because so so many people that I showed the script to said, of course, she's going to play that role, right? Eventually, it ended up happening. And we basically separated, literally, um, we have a little guest house out behind our house, and I went and lived in that. 
during the production of the film, we, we, we separated church and state, which was when we, when we were shooting and when I was working, we were not together when I was. And then I had time off and a day off and we were together. We did not discuss it. We did not address it. It was, a, it was a, 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 an agreement that it was almost like a contract that we made. Um, that when we walked on the set, we were one relationship. When we walked off the set, we were another. And it worked really, really, really well. The most amazing thing was the first day of shooting, getting behind the camera, putting her in front of the camera because she's in every scene in the movie. And I was so mesmerized by watching her on the monitor that I forgot to first yell action and then yell cut. And then I, I realized just after that one first simple take, that I was dealing with one of the most talented people uh, and and uh, that 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 I that I'd ever met and that I'd ever worked with and what an incredible realization after having been married to somebody seen their work known them and loved them to like go to this next level where I was an appreciator now of what she was doing and then she in turn appreciated how I had written and how I was directing. And so we ended up working together really, really well. And um, we're able to take each other to to higher levels than either of us had anticipated in the first place. She's so fucking beautiful in that movie. It was great. It was, it actually took our marriage to, uh, to, to, to an even better place than it was already at. It was a really dangerous move. It could have backfired easily and, and it didn't. But it's a tough film. It's a tough film to watch. It's a very difficult subject and a difficult film to watch. I wouldn't watch it. If it came up on my Netflix feed, I would not watch it. We had dinner one time with Blake Edwards and Julie Andrews, just the four of us. My wife was doing a a movie with Julie Andrews, and we ended up, the four of us, we thought there were going to be a ton of people, and we walked into this restaurant, there was nobody else there, and it was just the two of them. And I was just like, are you fucking kidding me? What am I going to say? How am I going to? He completely put me at ease. We had a wonderful evening, great conversation, and he asked me if I wrote. And I said, I I, I only write in, you know, in journals and, um, you know, for fun. And he said, but have you ever considered writing? Because you sound to me, you know, you, you speak in, in like a writer. And I said, I, I haven't been trained. I, I, I haven't, I, I never studied it. And he said, you, you don't need to. And I said, well, what do you mean and how and how did you become a writer? And basically, what is your process? And he said to me, he said, you know, I go to the quietest place. I sit, I had, I had a place uh, that he would go to. He said, I get my whatever it is I'm going to be writing with and set it out. And I, he said, and I just, I get very, very quiet and I sit and I wait 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 for the story to tell itself to me. I wait for something to speak to me and he said he compared it to like a bird sitting on his shoulder and singing into his ear i thought oh oh and that conversation absolutely led me to make the short and uh, and the feature of, of of morning that i ended up doing that that exchange gave me the courage to try to listen have you listened since then have you just tried to do that again <laughs> an interesting question in the 11th year of isolation in the pandemic. I oh, know it's, it's been eight months. My questions are these. What do we want to watch? What, what do we want to see? What stories do 
people want to be told. I have something. I've, I've shown it to um, a couple of friends. I have confidence in it, in the story itself, and in the telling of it. It's it's very, very different from what I did the first time out. But my, my question is, does, does anybody... Does anybody want to want to hear this story? Does anybody want to see this story told? So I'm kind of fumbling around with that because the moment that you take the step towards, okay, I'm doing this, that's a investment of years. I don't want to make that investment casually. I don't want to take that step, you know. So I have to just figure out if this is the story that I wanted that I feel people want to be told. I don't want to tell a story that nobody wants to, to hear. And what do I watch? What do I, what do I, what am I interested in seeing now? And we're so totally blindsided and, and traumatized by this period of time that we're, that we're all experiencing. What do we want to see during this time? What do we, or, or am I writing a story for when this time is all over and everything is back to normal or will everything ever be back to normal? What do I personally go to? What do I personally click on and sit with for 90 minutes, two hours, three hours? You know, we're watching Ken Burns's uh, series on country music. That's fantastic. We watched uh, the documentary about my teacher, the octopus on Netflix, about the guy who, who befriends an octopus in the reefs in South Africa, I think it is. Incredible. <laughs> so. I don't know. Have you been able to do much during this time? I worked straight for a number of years in Europe, and I was away from home for a long time and came back, and both of us work, and it was my turn to stay at home, and our, our son was finishing up high school and applying to colleges, and we've, we've never both been away at the same time. So, um, so I stayed, and we, you know finished up high school and got him into school and and then coronavirus arrived it's been a big fat long stretch since i've been out there and i have not worked on a set now with all the covid protocol and uh, restrictions but i hear it's hardcore Last but not least, you're going to hear from assistant director and special effects maestro Pitov as he talks all about his work on Alien Resurrection. And be sure to check out the bonus interview with him where he gives us a scoop all about Catwoman. You've been uh, working in the business for uh, quite a while. I mean, well before uh, Alien Resurrection, you had had uh, been doing a lot of stuff. Yeah, I'm a veteran. <laughs> Yeah, really. I started in, in the mid seventies, so uh, yeah, a long time ago in, in seventy nineteen seventy six. What got you into the business? I've always been dreaming to be a director since I'm a kid. When I was a kid, I really started to doing photography and art, you know, because it was easy at that time. So I had my black and white lab in the basement, and and that's where that's why I really, I really started to be attracted by images. Of course, I was 
watching movies on TV uh, in theaters, especially in Paris. I grew up in Paris, and in Paris you have like so many theaters, like almost like a you have almost a, 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 a not not almost, but we have a lot of bars and we have a lot of theaters. Uh, now it's different, but back then we had a lot of theaters. So it was really easy to watch movies and to be you know to be a a, a, a geek movie goer. So that, that's what, what I was. And in the meantime, I was like doing photography, but I was not like in like a Super 8. And I had a bunch of friends who were like making movies in Super 8, but I thought it was silly. I was not in that world. I, I, I preferred doing like a still, still, still photos. And then when it came to work, actually, my family was not in that business at all. So I didn't have a lot of way to get in the, uh, the movie business. So I started through photography and I was a photographer and assistant photographer. And one day I met a guy who was a friend of a friend who was a film editor. And then I hooked, I hooked up with a guy and I, I told him that, you know, my dream was to be a director and could, you, could he give me some uh, tips how to get there? And he told me, you know what, you know, the, uh, the editing is a nice way to start because you don't have to really a, 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 a very, very like a path to be a director. You know, actors can be director. There's not a one one path. So it's a bit. I think it's quite a good one because you know you are in the middle of the of everything, and you you really understand how the, the film uh, grammar works. Uh, I say yeah, and he told me yeah, if you want, I can I can uh, have you as an assistant uh, apprentice if you want. And I say yes, of course, please. Invite me. So, and, and, that, and that's how I started. And the irony, so it was in 76. And the irony was the guy was working on porn movies. So I started my career doing porn movies, which, is, which was really, I was 18, so it was quite fun. Uh, and and uh, yeah, yeah. But you know, at that time, porn movies were like regular movies. I mean, it, of course, it was hardcore movies, but they were not like today, like in a very shady thing. I mean, at that time, you had like two two categories. You had action movies and porn movies. The only difference is in one you were fighting and the other you were fucking. That was mostly a difference. And so there were serious movies like uh, with production and everything. So uh, uh, I did that for uh, five, six years and I made a bunch of movies. And I was lucky enough to go from editing to assistant director. And, and it became sort of like a university because, you know, I, it was a, a, a small crew. And so I could really try to learn every, every step in everywhere. You know, as a, uh, so I've been, you know, been an electrician, a grip, uh, a, camera, a focus puller, cameraman, DP. You know, I had the opportunity to, uh, to really experience every, every single uh, work position in the, in the movie industry. As well in post production, I did dubbing, I did music editing, I did film editing, and at that, at that time it was in, of course, we were cutting films. So I really learned from the ground, and, and, I, and I'm really, really, and it was because of porn movies. Because if I started in the real industry, everything is much more, you know, uh, uh, yucky. I mean, you can't do, you have to. I, I, would, I, I would have been able to do that many things in a regular film industry. So I was really uh, lucky with that. So, I mean, this porn industry was in 1935. Uh, the movie were released in, in theater, in a regular theater. And then when the when the um, uh, the video started, you know, the home video really started. That was definitely the death for the porn movies because people didn't want to go to see a movie in a theater if they, if 
they had the opportunity to watch it on the VHS at home. So that really killed the, 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 the film industry in theaters. And so and for, for, from that on, I mean, the movies were shot in videos, and the quality really started to drop. And and I gave up because you know I I was I was not you know uh, into porn I was into movies and at that point you know the the, the movies didn't look like movies anymore and I, I quit the porn industry to go uh, to go into commercial because you know the regular movie industry wouldn't you know uh, take me so the only uh, job I could find was like doing commercials and you know, corporate movies that's how I you know I I moved but then I start to get bored because you know I wanted to do feature films. Uh, and because of my technical background in editing and photo, then I start to uh, be interested in uh, video editing and video uh, switching and, do, and doing that. It was not really visual effects, but let's say video effects at that time. And uh, I really start to, 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 to do this. And then that took me to digital because then I realized that, you know, the, the digital era w- w- were arriving. And in France, I was then the first to uh, to believe in the in the uh, the video, I mean the digital for video first and for movie afterwards, and then I started this company and we bought the first digital machine from Contel, an English company who built this uh, this uh, computer called the Harry, and I was the very first in Paris to use the Harry. Talking about it was in in eighty five. That that was really fun because you know it was the uh, I was the new guy in uh, in town doing like a. People doing things that people didn't understand. I get all the uh, the good directors and the good commercials, and for like a like a decade, I was lucky enough to do the best commercial we had in France. Of course, because my, my goal was to go back to the film industry, and then I developed in house a, a system to uh, to be able to do digital film as well. So same thing, we did the first digital visual effects shot for for a feature film, and at that time it was Delicatessen from uh, Caro and Genea. And then, and then that that was really the beginning for for me to to get back into the movie industry and do visual effects for the uh, the, the movie industry. So that, that's how you know that Kelly went uh, the, uh, uh, until Alien. And then because you know I worked with Jean-Pierre Genet on commercials on uh, on on his movies, I did the visual effects for Delicatessen, of course, and then the, the City of Lost Children. And then Jean-Pierre get hired by Fox. Because of uh, of uh, of um, the city of Bastion for for Alien, and then Fox asked Jean Pierre to bring his crew because they really loved the uh, the way he did the city of Bastion, and, and and Fox said, okay, bring your guys. I mean, bring your DP, bring your effects guy, bring your editor, and that's how we all landed. You know, the French, <laughs> the French bad, bad boys and girls. That's how we landed in Los Angeles like 25 years ago. That <laughs> was fun. <laughs> I can't imagine you doing digital effects in the early 90s and and in the 80s. I mean, it's just, it must have been a real challenge to even get the equipment to work and to, I mean, God, the file sizes must have been huge back then. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so the the equipment, okay, was very limited because, I mean, the the only computer at that time was a silicon graphics that was very expensive uh, computers. And then you have to vote. You have to write your own program because you know there's no program on the market. So I designed the uh, the first two for us. I've done the design of the of the software for compositing for you know the city of our children. And so we had our own R and D department in house in order to uh, to build the uh, the tools we needed. And and it was amazing because in the meantime we're. 
we have also like a motion control uh, rig for the shooting. And, and what we tried to do actually was to, to be the French little ILM. That was the goal for us. Of course, our our like a, a leading star was ILM, and so we wanted to uh, not to copy, but you know to be to be inspired by what they were doing and what and and how they were working. So and then that's what that's how we decided. Okay, we need to to be able to deal with the, the two ends, the the shooting and the post production. That's how we uh, we invested in a in a motion in a motion control rig, you know, to be to be able to I mean to. Uh, to do visual effects, really, personally. Because, like you said, at that time, it was very rudimentary and very basic. And you have to almost reinvent the wheel uh, on every shot because you have to try to be the, the, the most creative, creative possible and give some liberty to the director. And, and But not too much because, of course, you have to make sure that at the end, you got the shot. So it, it, it's really it's very interesting. And everything starts to change when the first tracking software appear to be able to track without motion control and to be able to not be uh, dealing with lock off camera and all that that was a very very big huge turn and the first movie i did that was on on Luc Besson's movie in Joan of Arc and uh, and the challenge uh, i gave myself to Luc Besson because Luc Besson wanted to work with me but you know Luc Besson like to do whatever he wants and uh, and you don't have to be, don't like to have restraints and all that kind of thing. And when he started to talk to me about my painting and, you know, the, the fact that, you know, he didn't want to, he didn't want to be like uh, in block of cameras and he wanted to have some liberty. And I said to him, yeah, okay, go, go, do whatever you want. And it'll be like, you sure? Yes. Okay. Uh, and I think, okay, you know what? He, he was like doing, uh, he was doing like a rehearsing and, uh, and scouting. And he said, you, you know what? Take a camera, do a handheld shot of, Whatever you want, and I'll put the magic and I will uh, send me send me the send me the the, the the film, and and within a week we'll put my painting on the shot and we'll send it and we'll send it back to you in thirty five, so you can really see the quality on and the thing. That's what we did, and a week after that he received the print with my painting on on his handheld shot, and then he was convinced. Okay, that's okay. You can do it. That's how I did Chernovac. It was, you know, it was very high speed. Uh, because of that, of this, of really the computer, you know, taking over the, everything. That was that 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 was a, a very game changer. And now, I mean, every iPhone or whatever, you know, software on internet has motion tracking, which was at that time. And I'm talking about like I think it was '97, '98 or something. It was a revolution, revolution. So it was like a, like a 22 years ago. An iPhone you can do the track is something that is so easy, but you know that's that's the way it is. <laughs> Tell me about that experience of working with uh, Janae Caro, especially on uh, City of Lost Children, and then what it was like to just work with Janae on Alien Resurrection. Yeah, so it was very special because Jean Pierre Caro and Janae were both my best friends, and especially Marc Caro. Marc Caro uh, uh, had been my witness on, on, on my wedding, so it was like a really a small family. So we were very close together, cl- close tight. Yeah, working was very easy. I mean, easy. Humanly speaking, very easy because, you know, we're very close, but very hard. I won't say hard because the, the, the thing with Carol and Janet is they have a very, very, very precise idea of what they want. The City of Lost Children, Marc Caro did the storyboard of every fucking shot. Everything was, was, was storyboarded. And while Jean-Pierre was... Uh, even... 
when Jean Pierre and, and Carol, Jerry um, and Carol were uh, 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 writing the script, so they uh, I, I was exchanging with them uh, what was possible, what was not possible. So I was really part of the process from the writing, so which was like uh, an amazing uh, uh, chance for me. And, uh, during the shooting, of course, I was like uh, on the set every day. Uh, we had the shot. Uh, and then during the editing as well, so I was working closely with the editor uh, to make sure that you know everything was fine with the visual effects uh, shot. Uh, everything was very close, very 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 close. Uh, and because we have this really friendship relationship, that makes things very easy. But easy but scary because it's because they're your friends, so you you, you don't want to uh, to de- uh, deceive them. You want to give to, to give them the uh, uh, the best. You know, it's it's the opposite. You know. You can, you can think it works can be two ways because it's your friend. You can say to your friend, "Oh, it's okay." You know, we do, uh, uh, try, try to, uh, to to limit things, or you can go the other way around. I mean, because it's your friend, yeah, there's no place for fuck up, and you want to give them better than even expect. And I was more into that that world to give to, to give to uh, to Carol and Janet, You know, what they expected may or maybe better uh, if it's possible. And they were very confident. I mean, they, they were. They never had any doubts on anything uh, concerning the, the, the work we did. And, and they were really like, uh, if they felt that they could push us, they would push us. And if they felt that, you know, that they are happy with what they have, then it was, okay, I'm good. So uh, uh, go to the next shot. But, you know, but we were always, you know, both of us, you know, uh, looking to do the best and, and to, to push the boundaries, to go you know, as far as we can uh, we can go. That was the other was the And so... And the very difference between uh, Alien and, and the City of Lost Children is Marc Caro. Because Marc Caro, on the City of Lost Children, you know, Marc Caro and, and, and Jean-Pierre and, and, uh, and Genet work really very closely together. Caro was a designer and, uh, and, and Genet was a director. So uh, a director, meaning he was, you know, on the set, he was talking to the DP, talking to the actors, where Caro was really dealing with the uh, visual aspect with, uh, with the... Uh, uh, the production designer, with the costume designer, so they really split the work uh, like that. So it was like to have like a, a monster with two heads. <laughs> but uh, but they were always, you know, but they were always in sync. I mean, uh, uh, when one when was when one was was happy with something, the other was happy as well. So they, it was really like a, like a, an amazing, you know, uh, which worked. Uh, we, we never had any conf- we, we never felt any conflicts between the two of them. So that was really, uh, really great. And then on Alien, so I just had to deal with, with, with Jean-Pierre, and Jean-Pierre was doing like everything. And same thing, he was designing every shot. So it was storyboarded. And then uh, Marc Caro took a part at the, at the very beginning. Anyway, the studio didn't want to deal with Caron Genet. They just wanted to have Genet. And, uh, and Marc Caro worked on the very pre-production of the on the design of the costume, on the, the, the global design on, on, the, on the thing. And he works on very pre-storyboard and pre-design uh, from France. Uh, and then when we, uh, we start to work in, in LA, uh, then Jean-Pierre had his own crew of, of, uh, of, uh, of course, of personal designer, of costume designer, storyboard artist, and, and all that. And, and um, yeah, so I was really close to him. And I was that close that's when, uh, of course, on the on the type of movie, the, I mean, the the, the the studio wants the director to have a secondary director, 
And Jean-Pierre said, no, no, I don't want a security director. I don't need a security director. So he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, no, no, you, there's no way. You, you won't have the time and, and the energy to do everything. So we want you to have a second, a second director. And Jean-Pierre stayed. And of course, they, they present Jean-Pierre some so regular second American director, and Jean-Pierre was really happy with them. And also, Jean-Pierre didn't speak a word of English at that time. So that's complicated. Not, not, not one word. Besides yes, goodbye, and no. Uh, so he had, an, uh, yeah, yeah, that was a performance. And he had an interpreter who was like translating, you know, in real time, back and forth. So that was really a performance. And so Jean-Pierre didn't want to deal with, with, uh, with uh, a, an English-speaking uh, secondary director. And, and so he, he said, you know, you know what, on Sins of Our Children, that's shot Pitoff were my secondary director. And that's, yeah, that's true. I mean, on, on, on all the shots that were just visual effects, I was directing the, uh, the, the second unit of uh, the City of Our Children. But it was a small, small second unit. And, and Jean-Pierre said, okay, you know, I really would, would love to have Peter doing it. And the studio said, oh, well, not sure, not very sure. And they said, okay, we can, we can test him. And so they, they gave me one night uh, uh, to do some alien close-ups. Uh, and it was when they, when they were in the uh, elevator scene. When, when, when uh, um, Ron Tolman was shooting uh, the alien, you know, who was like on the ladder down, a few, a few, a few meters down, and so, and my, my first assignment was to do some close-ups on uh, on alien with with the bullets and all that stuff. We would spend the night so it was my second unit, and the day after, when the uh, the studio looked at the shot, they, they loved it. And they told me you are hired, <laughs> so I was hired as well as the second. So I was I was the visual supervisor, and then I had a second half uh, being the second director, and that was to me that was such a blessing. Yeah, and Jean Pierre was very happy with that because you know we we didn't even have to speak because with Jean Pierre I knew exactly what he wanted, and and so I've been part of every every pre-production process. And and uh, I, I knew the story by my heart, and I knew exactly what Jean Pierre would like, and so I, I I knew I knew how to shoot like Jean Pierre would have shot. So that that was uh, Jean Pierre making me very comfortable. And then at the end, I shot you know, all, I wouldn't say half, but you know, pretty much like um, almost half of the of the shots in Alien are shots I shot because you know I've shot all the shots without a, a leading actor. Of course, sometimes it was the reverse, the reverse angles, and sometimes you know the, the whole scene. So, for example, the scene when the uh, uh, when the queen is, is giving birth to the, the, the new world. I mean, I shot the whole scene. There's just a few close-up of of Sigourney, and so of course Jean-Pierre went on set to shoot Sigourney, but all the rest it was me on my own with the puppeteers and with the cranes and all that stuff. So to me, it was you know. Incredible! It was like a blessing because I had the whole thing with 80 people on set just for me, <laughs> and Jackson, all these guys. It was something. And there's the other scene because you know Dominic Pinon because I knew Pinon from France and Jean Pierre when when the scene where where Dominic Pinon is in the corridor and with an alien on top of him and he's shooting him. Jean Pierre told me because you uh, aren't we were late or something, but it, it was convinced for Jean Pierre for me to direct the scene. So he, he told me, okay, you know, you know, you know, you know, you know, okay, do, do the scene. So yeah, there's a few things like that I have uh, 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 directed and plus all the action stuff and so. So at the end, you know, my participation was not, was uh, big and, uh, and I, I, I like that. <laughs>
were you splitting your time between doing the directing and doing visual effects at that point, or did the effects come after that? No, no, no. I was splitting my time doing, you know, everything at the same time because, you know, every uh, uh, doing the visual effects, and also I had three three visual effects crew. I have one on set. I had one uh, who is doing the, the miniature because we have all the, uh, I mean, the, the spaceship was miniature, and we had two motion control rigs to do the miniature. And I had a, a third small unit to do uh, what we call the blood and guts, all the little explosion and blood and so on. So I was really uh, 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 dealing with... There's one unit that I didn't really deal with, guts with. That was the miniature, because I had, I had my co-supervisor, Enric Henry, who was really focusing on, on, on the miniature. So he was like, he was, I was going back and forth sometime, but yeah, Eric Henry was working full time on the miniature. So that's, it was his, uh, his thing. But as a visual supervisor, then I was, you know, uh, uh, interacting with, with all the layers because the, the, uh, the, the, whoops, the, the, the miniature was shot more motion control and we shot, you know, like sometimes 10 or 15 passes per shot. To get all the beauty shot, the beam light, the smoke, the, all the different elements who were compositing later on uh, uh, in the computer. My life was pretty busy at that time. <laughs> pretty busy. Yeah, because every day we shot like for 12 hours. And then after that, we, uh, uh, we had to see the, uh, the editing and the dailies. So, uh, yeah, yeah, we, we had very long days, very long days. It must have been a challenge to recreate that intricate the the Giger designs were uh, in a computer and then also when you're shooting live mm-hmm. action stuff it must have been difficult to shoot that because the creatures are so shiny and and always need to be lit in such a way to to emphasize that kind of insect like um, husk that they have that was really the thing with with uh, Darius Kanji uh, DP and his technique which was a brilliant was, you know, to bring a lot, a lot of uh, neon light. So every time we shot the alien, so the alien was covered with slime to make, to, to, to make it, to, to make, you know, the, 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 the texture of the alien very, very shiny, but it was, it was very uh, irregular because it was, it was not like, you know, a mirror, but it was more like a, like a, uh, it was a texture. So reflecting with slime, you know, so, so we put a lot of slime on the alien. So, and the set was like, he had like hundreds, of, maybe not hundreds, but at least 50 neons, neon lights, you know, neon tubes that were everywhere on the set. So whatever the alien was doing, he was always catching some reflections and some, some, uh, some, some light on them. But that was his, uh, his technique for aliens, and it works like wonderfully. It's well, yeah, it's, uh, the way the aliens look like in this movie are incredible. The baby alien is just remarkable that it can be so horrifying and sympathetic at the same time. At the beginning, when we were in pre-production, we decided that, that all the aliens that, you know, that are, we don't see the, uh, the, 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 the feet are practical. And as soon as we, we see the, the alien full body, then it's, a, it's a CG because, you know, it's, you know it's, it's impossible to do it practically. So that was the, the thing. But the design of the newborn took forever. The, the studio finally signed up the design very late in the, in the, in the process. And, and it was, the, the, the shooting, the first principle of photography, have just started when they finally were okay with the, uh, the, the, the newborn design. So at that point, it was too late 
to to uh, to have the newborn ready for the Blue Sky Studio. who were doing the visual effects for the uh, the 3D alien. It was too late for them to model the alien and stuff. So there's no way that the, uh, the newborn would have any digital uh, 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 double. So we had to deal with with the, with this guy and, and do it practically, just you know, some erase the rod and everything. So, but you know, it has to be digital. And so, and, and John Pierre wanted to put the focus then on his on his uh, expression. So, uh, uh, ADI who did the creature spent you know a lot of time to design the head and to have like uh, uh, dozens of models in the head to be able to manipulate the eye, to manipulate the uh, the, the, the wrinkles, the, 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 not the mouse, yeah, the mouse, but you know, everything on, on his face that could give, you know, a, a, a ground for an, an expression. So that, that was the bigger challenge was to make this creature, uh, uh, with emotion. And also it was, you know, the fact that, okay, the creature is, is hybrid. It's a mix between a human and an alien. And whatever, what an alien doesn't show is expression. So Jean Pierre wanted to go the other way with this guy. And to have this guy, you know, with as much expression as possible, yeah, to show that the transition where, you know, you come from this insect uh, thing uh, to another thing which is much, much more emotional. And that, you know, actually, uh, it was pretty great because you really feel that you feel sorry for him or you feel like uh, empathy. You feel, you feel something. Where the alien, just with the regular alien, you just you just fucking scared when they look at you. So that was the big thing with the newborn is to, to have expression. What were some of the biggest challenges that you had making the movie? Because it sounds like there are a lot of things that you have to overcome while you're you're solving all these problems. Yeah, the, the big thing was the uh, the underwater scene. That was the, the first big chunk of work we started with. And we shot this uh, this scene before Christmas, and with Jean Pierre, we always say, okay, if we shoot the scene, and he, and if we can show the studio something they're happy with, we will we will end up the movie. Otherwise, they they will fire us after Christmas. <laughs> so that was the the, the thing. So really, uh, and we put everything we had uh, to shoot this scene, and then during Christmas, Jean Pierre wanted to have an editing of, of, of the scene with music, sound, and everything to show to, show to the studio almost as a Christmas present. And, and then the scene was, you know, amazing. So the studio was very happy, and then we, uh, we, we had been fired. So that's what was a good thing. The challenge was first to find a place to shoot the thing. So we, we, we start to look around uh, in town if we have tanks and... Uh, so we could do it, and at the end we couldn't find a tank that would work for us. So Fox the Studio then decided to to dig a tank in one of the in one of the sets. So there was so one of the sets we had. Then they, they really did an amazing, incredible work to dig a, a tank and to do whatever you have to do, uh, installing water and all that stuff to to make it work practically. So that was a big, big challenge. And then after that, the shooting was shown because you, you have to deal with the actors on the world. And the, the, and the shot has to be beautiful. So Darius was putting milk in the water. So he was dosing milk to get this murkness of, of the water and his depth. So, um, and to shoot, you know, with the light, to be able to direct the actors with the uh, uh, underwater speakers. And uh, 
for the safety stuff, it was it was really something. It was and personally, yeah, I've never I've never done before anything on the water, and Jean Pierre neither Jean Pierre. So it was really like uh, we, we had to learn fast how to deal with and to understand what we could do, what, what we can't, what, what was possible, what was not possible, and how to be safe because, of course, you want to be safe and and get uh, everything you want. Yeah, I guess it was the most most challenging part because you know it's a lot, lot of unknown with, with the water and and the rest. Everything was a challenge uh, whatsoever uh, because you know because same thing we wanted to to give the maximum, to push boundaries and to think out of, out of the box. And where sometimes, you know, I, us as French, it was hard because, you know, the studio, especially when you have a film crew, a uh, studio film crew, they don't, they don't want to think out of the box. I mean, they want to be, to, to, to do uh, the way it has to be done and so on and, and the procedures and, and stuff. So, and sometimes Jean-Pierre was pushing uh, uh, the envelope and forcing people to do stuff, uh, and you know, and every time you know he couldn't do it. And, and, and there's one example, uh, and that's uh, Jean Pierre always uh, talk about this one. One day, Jean Pierre, so we are just uh, uh, finishing, just finished the shot, and he wanted just to tighten, to to, to do a, a, ver- a different version of the same shot, but just to uh, to be a little higher and, and do a quick shot. And then Jean Pierre said to the, uh, the, 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 uh, the 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 camera operator, "Could you please come on the ladder?" Like we do in France, hey guys, you just climb the, climb the ladder, take the camera, hang it out, and shoot the fucking thing. You know, it it will take five minutes. And the, the camera operator said, "Yeah, of course, no, no problem." So he called the grapes to bring uh, to bring uh, a ladder, and the, the guy brought the ladder, and then another grape came. Uh, and brought a, an apple box, and the third grip came with uh, with nails. Another one, another one, and at the end, at the end, it took half an hour to rig the fucking you know uh, ladder, where because you know, no safety first, no no, it, it will take one minute, no, no worries, no, no boss, okay, but I'm on his boss, I'm on his boss, and Jean Pierre started to be really crazy. Hey guys, I just wanted to shoot the fucking thing. It takes five seconds, and then it took half an hour. And Jean-Pierre was so pissed because I lost the shot. You know, this one is goodies. And now the next shot, I will, uh, you know, I've lost half an hour of my next shot. So, uh, and, then later, and then later on, he never tried to do the, the, the gypsy, uh, like we call the gypsy, uh, gypsy thing, you know, to be able to, uh, to be rock and roll. And, uh, okay, Jean-Pierre understood, okay, in a studio, in a studio world, you don't do that. You don't, uh, you don't do that. Yeah, I could do it in the second unit because you know we had a smaller crew, and uh, I could, and that's the, the purpose of the second unit to to be you know you do have uh, uh, the main the main cast, uh, so you can do like more like gypsy rock and roll stuff. But first unit, no fucking way. <laughs> so that was a lesson. That was a lesson for all of us. I know that you said uh, Jean-Pierre couldn't really speak English, but he had a translator. Was there a language barrier, though, between you and the people that you're working with or, or him and, and the actors? No, no. That was fantastic because, yeah, no, never. And, and actually, and the first meeting Jean-Pierre did with the studio, he came. So he, he was really picky on the, on the uh, interpreter. And so he found this, uh, this girl. Who used to work like you know in big organization, you know when you have like people talking with uh, in real time and, uh, and so on. Uh, so he found this girl who was amazing, and so he went 
to his first interview with the studio with this with this woman, and everything uh, went so flawless that the studio then uh, were, uh, start, was was comfortable because he, they, they thought they, they saw that the communication went back and forth in the meeting very easily. So because of that, the job got the job, and later on during during production. It was the same thing. I mean, everything was like very easy because of this woman, because she was so uh, incredibly fast, and she could really translate, you know, a back and forth with with a few seconds of the of delay. It was like having a subtitle. <laughs> it was uh, <laughs> seriously. It was it was incredible. So, uh, I, and then yeah, communication were were very easy, very easy. At the beginning, it was complicated, but it was not a, a matter of communication. It was a matter of culture, more so to understand how so Jean Pierre had to understand how a film crew work, and the film crew had to understand how, how the brain of the French director works. So, <laughs> so it was we had a little like a, a couple of weeks of adaptation. So everybody, you know, both the, 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 the two beasts, you know. Uh, start to understand each other, and you know, can we work in, uh, in uh, you know, uh, in sync? So it, yeah, I think it took two weeks uh, to really to be uh, to be at you know at cruise speed, and everything was 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 fine. But but it was not language; it was really more the culture thing, like uh, how what is uh, the, the the movie culture, the, the, the crew culture in France and and in in Hollywood, because and especially like a, a union studio crew. Uh, uh, which is very, very different from a from even a big French crew, where everything is different. You know, in France we do like the uh, first we do the what, what here we say we call it the French hour when you start shooting at noon until 7:30 p.m. So that that's not a French and with no break. That's that's how we shoot. But then we are uh, so the, the the thing is so you, uh, the crew is on set uh, at at 10 a.m. in the morning. So you have one hour prep. Then at 11, you go to lunch, and then at noon, you start to work. And of course, during lunch, in French, we drink wine. So we have wine at lunch, and we smoke on set, we drink on set. <laughs> you know, it's another, it's another culture. It's really, and everybody's, uh, you know, having jokes, and, you know, everybody yells, everybody, you know, uh, uh, swear. So it's it's a very very of course I'm a little bit over the top whenever I say that but you know it's it's a very a little especially with Jean Pierre because Jean Pierre has his own family it, he he always kept the same crew from one movie to a commercial to a music video so he it, it's his family so very so you have direct you you have your shortcuts when you when when you deal with your family when when you work. But here in LA, of course, he has, you know, his close body, like the editor, uh, like the DP, like me. So, of course, we, we, we had, this, uh, we had this, the same connection and the same, you know, speed of connection. But we had to deal with the, uh, the I won't say the weight, but the, how the, the American crew and the American studio and the, the studio and the crew and, and the contingency and how the, the, the practice works. So... The crew was amazing, and the crew was, you know, really wanted to uh, to please Jean Pierre and try to adapt uh, uh, themselves, you know, the best they could to to work with us. So it was really, like I said, the, the first two weeks was a little awkward, uh, like you know, two dogs uh, uh, sniffing their butts. 
but but then you know afterwards it was really fascinating and and the uh, I remember like on any movie the last shot everybody's crying you know when they say it's a wrap and it's the last shot of you know the la- the last of the last you know it's, you feel the goosebumps and you you cry because you know it's the end of the story and uh, it will never be the same after that so we really tied amazing relationship with both sides you know uh, 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 you know the, the image and. Because we shot everything in the studio. Yeah, there's no one shot outside. We had like three or uh, four studios at, at, um, on the Fox lot, and it was a village for us. And the, 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 four, the four sets were close next to each other, and we were moving from one set to another one. So one, is, one was uh, prepping, one was shooting, and one was uh, striking. So, so it was continuous work. Within the, 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 the three main sets, and the, the fourth one was visual effect shot with green screen uh, and so on. So it was a, we had our little village, and, and we lived for almost six months in that village. So it was intense and long hours, and you know, it was very intense, but intense in a good, in a very good way. All right, we are back, and we're talking about Alien Resurrection. And by the way, just so you know, that was the first half of the interview with Pitoff. The second half will be available as a separate special. Be sure to check it out, because if you are as fascinated with the Catwoman debacle as I am, you're going to definitely love hearing Pitoff just give us all the tea. Poor Pitoff. Poor Pitoff. <laughs> One of my favorite parts in the commentary is when the, in Alien Resurrection is when they're talking about the brandy that's in that little cube, and then the you know the guy uses the laser to to melt it. This I think it's one of my favorites because it's very very fucking stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I do have to ask you know why they would transport a little cube of uh, jelly as opposed to a, a container of yeah, liquid. That- he goes, but it was still kind of a fun thing to do. <laughs> but it's just like the other guy's like, yeah, I don't know why you would transport brandy that way, <laughs> but okay. Because it's the future. Apparently, they were supposed to have another insect in the movie, and there's going to be a mosquito that bites Ripley and then it explodes yeah. because of the acid blood. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. But they figured out how much it would cost to do that effect, and they said, yeah, we're, gonna, we're not going to do that. But they kept in the part where uh, Jonner shoots the spider after. Uh, right. After every uh, after everything else he's got. I just wonder how that spider ended up on there. <laughs> Apparently he's supposed to be deathly afraid of insects. Like that was one of the things that was in the novelization that didn't ever come through anyplace else. But when he sees that spider, I was like, oh, that's like the last little remnant of that, apparently. I have to tell the story, and I think I told you this story, Mike. I have to tell you the story of Michael Wincott, because I tried to get an interview with Michael Wincott. Big fan of Michael Wincott. Love Michael Wincott. The Crow, Counter Monte Cristo. I mean, anything that he's in, I love his performance. Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. <laughs> so I email his person, and his person writes back and says, Hi, Mr. White. As you might be aware, Mr. Wincott is not inclined to give interviews. Regarding the movie you mentioned, which is Alien Resurrection, I can only assure you that he believes any of the alien derivatives following Ridley's original are inferior. Best, Edith Grove, Botany Hill Productions. Wow. 
Yeah. <laughs> so I wrote back and I said, okay, that's cool. One of these days I would love to talk to him about something maybe he did enjoy doing. And so she writes back, just writes back and says, some enjoyable things to talk about. Seven beauties. Amacord, the loneliness of the long distance runner, death in Venice, last tango in Paris, silent light, taxi driver, dog tooth, the conformist, Laclise, Dr. Strangelove, the hustler, irreversible, network, city lights, greed, Mulholland Drive, Le Mepris, day of the locust, they shoot horses, don't they, bicycle thieves, eight and a half, the mirror. Thanks for your admiration. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> Just like, was he in those films? No, he wasn't in those. (laughs) Yeah. So I wrote back and I said, yeah, those are all great movies. And we had a blast talking about Mulholland Drive and they shoot horses, don't they? And I included the episodes. And then she writes back again. Just out of curiosity, why, if that caliber of film engages you, would you presume Mr. Wincott might be at all enthused about a vastly inferior one? (laughs) Wow. I wrote back and I said, I wrote back and I said, more than anything, I just want an excuse to talk to him about his career. I've always enjoyed everything that he's done and any role that he's been in, no matter how large or small. And that's the last email I ever got back. (laughs) (laughs) So strange. What the fuck, man? (laughs) I mean, hey, Mr. Wincott, if you're out there and you want to come on and talk about the loneliness of the long distance runner, I'm here for you. I got a co-host chair sitting right here. That would be awesome if all this, if you never actually get an interview with him, but he just becomes a reoccurring guest on the show. It's it's like, hey, Michael Wincott's back. Can you imagine him and Tom Waits having a conversation? I like have a who many times the most. <laughs> just just as I've I've imagined a movie where Tom Waits and Ron Perlman play uh, assassin brothers. Fuck. Yes, exactly. (laughs) I would like, speaking of Frankenstein, I would like Tom Waits to be Dr. Frankenstein and Ron Perlman to be the monster. (laughs) I have created you in my own image. That and uh, Kurt Russell and Jeff Bridges. Why they have never worked together, I, I don't know. God, would they be in a sci-fi movie or a cowboy movie? Again, I kind of, I kind of like this idea of just you know where you have du- uh, duos of assassins trying to kill each other, and they're all brother or sister teams, and it's just actors that vaguely look like each other. Oh, oh, I got it. Why not Will Smith and a clone of Will Smith? There you go. <laughs> it's like if you were to mash up, uh, uh, it's a mad, 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 mad world and battle royale. That's basically what I'm going for here. After Alien Resurrection, we didn't get another Ripley Alien film. That was, what, 97? And then in 2004, we finally got Alien vs. Predator. And I get a lot of shit for it, but I fucking love Alien vs. Predator. It's interesting because she talks on the commentary. One of the reasons she signed on to Alien Resurrection, I think, was to try to prevent Alien vs. Predator from happening. I was not a fan of AVP when it first came out, but over the years, I've come around to it more. And it's it's just a big, dumb, fun movie. Alien vs. Predator, the first one, to me, is the kids' movie that all these toys were were, were building yes. towards. From, you know, you know like, this is the movie that made sense to have toys associated with. Yeah, here's my Scar action figure. The Dreaded Beast versus the Savage Hunter. Aliens versus Predator with awesome new Predators. Clan Leader attacks with whipping dreadlocks. And Stalker, glowing in the dark, fires his spear. Suddenly, clipping up his attack spikes, the wild boar alien charges. And the ferocious mother alien in her monstrous hive traps Spike Tail, then covers him in ooze. Ooze him! 
Who will survive? Aliens versus Predator. Queen High playset comes with mother alien figure and ooze. Other figures sold separately. There was an inevitability to the whole thing, right? Like as soon as that alien head was at the end or you know, was, was in Predator 2, it was like, okay, this is going to have to happen someday. Exactly. Oh, and the comic books were fantastic. I love the comic books of, of Alien vs. Predator. And again, I don't think that those were Ripley comic books. I nope. think they're a separate colony, and it's like, okay, this is cool. You know, it's not on Earth even. It's just, here this stuff is taking place. If they had kept a little bit more with that, I don't think that that movie would have gotten as much shit as it did. It's not the high watermark of Paul W.S. Anderson's career. Obviously, that's Event Horizon, oh, yeah. but it's up there. It is towards that top. It's one of his more inspired movies. And it's just like you're saying, it's perfectly, it's perfectly fun and enjoyable. But I, going back to like, like I said, in terms of my reaction to Alien Resurrection, my reaction to the first Alien versus Predator is definitely also informed by the second one. <laughs> well, yeah, there is that. And for the, for the longest time, I was actually going to bat for Requiem because it did a lot of things that I enjoyed. It, it, one of my major complaints about the first one is that it was a PG-13 film that for, for coming from two very hard franchises, particularly Predator, the fact that they had been reduced to PG-13, it didn't sit with me right. So Requiem went into it and it went into it. Hard, hard enough to slaughter an entire neonatal ward. Hard. That was this movie went really, really hard. Rewatching it now, though, it's it, it, it's the one that aged the worst for me. Just with the 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 blandness of the characters and the subplots that really add nothing to the movie. I mean, honestly, you could you could you could cut it down to a good forty minutes and maybe actually co- color correct it properly so you could see what the hell is even going on in some of the sequences. But and you'd have a good movie. But uh, yeah, in the last like ten minutes of that movie, because I remember you and I saw it together. Mike. We saw it together, yeah. And and I remember the last ten minutes suddenly like sitting up in my seat because. When and I don't even remember the, any of the characters' names, but when when the one when the one girl goes running through the cheerleader, I think, and suddenly just gets dispatched by by the predator's glaive, uh, which which I can't I don't know the correct term for, and it was so quick and so unexpected. I was like, it just made me sit right up in the theater. I'm like, oh wait, we're cooking with gas now. And then ten minutes later, the movie's over. <laughs> it's yeah. like, and then and, and and again, it's and it ends in such a way. I think I'm remembering the right one here. This is the one where they nuke the town at the end, right? Yep. Yeah, they blow yeah, it up and, from and, space. It's the only way to be sure. Yeah, it's the only way to be sure. And and again, that's one of those things I've let. So you had to blow up the town because you're trying to respect continuity that you spent the whole movie ruining. <laughs> you know? You know? So that in the end, it's like, no, 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 it's fine. No one's going to remember that this happened. But then we're going to throw in this uh, Waylon yutani reference mm-hmm, so that mm-hmm. everybody can get all excited. And it's like, for what? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and I also felt very strongly that they go in hard for the for the R rating, but it's all just, in my opinion, it was all just again like mismanaged. It's one of those things of okay, well, we know that you weren't happy. You know, the general audience wasn't happy with the with the PG thirteen, so we're not going to do that this time. We're not going to do any of it really right, though. <laughs> like, we're just going to throw in gore where it would make sense, you know, where we think it would make sense, but it doesn't really work in terms of the story. And again, this was another one of those. This one, I think, more than any of the others, was I like, how does the acid work and when does it work? <laughs> like, okay, there's not much in the way of consistency with that, no. 
It's very, very frustrating. <laughs> well, and if memory serves, this was the Predaliens, yep. so we have the aliens versus the cross with it. And yeah, I remember sitting in the theater with you, and I was quoting, I think, aliens the most, but just saying all these lines because they were basically aping those. This felt, it felt like a multi-million dollar fan film, is what it felt like. It and really to your did, point, yeah. if they cut it down to like 40, 40 minutes, throw it on YouTube, people would be losing their shit over it. Like, oh my god, look at this awesome thing that these, you know, two brothers made that, uh, you know, live out and wherever. But as a, a theatrical release? No, thank you. When no. when the when the Red Band trailer came out, it was like, okay, maybe this is it. You're getting two and a half minutes of highlights. And it, it really does speak to what you're saying. Like, okay, that two and a half minutes, I, I'm on board for this. <laughs> you see the the full movie, it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> and then I think, Mike, you and I have been having basically a continuing conversation every day since, when was it? 2012 when 2012. Uh, Prometheus came out. I mean, this movie has given us more fodder than any other movie to talk about. I remember it was in August of that year. I was at, I was at work and we were talking about you know the, the summer movies and you know that was the year the Avengers came out and uh, and I and I said and everybody's like, well, that was that's that's going to be the big movie of the year. You know, that's the you know that no, nothing's bigger than that. I'm like, you're all wrong. And this was already after it come out. Like, I go, Prometheus is the biggest movie of the year. Do you want to know why it's the biggest movie of the year? Because we can't stop talking about it. And I know I can't stop talking about it. Neither can any of the people I was talking with. I go, <laughs> will we, we can't let this movie go for some reason. And nine years later, here and we are still later, talking right about here. it. I can see it from here. I've got, I haven't framed it yet, but I've got the poster. <laughs> <laughs> I watched a fan edit of it today that I had downloaded probably in 2014, and I finally brought myself to watch this fan edit today. It's the first time that I've watched it since I th saw it theatrically because I hated it so much. And the fan edit does a couple of interesting things that I think that the movie should have done, one of which was to actually show us Guy Pierce without all the makeup on, because otherwise, why don't you just cast someone who's 80, 90 years old rather than having Guy Pierce under all of this horrible-looking old-age <laughs> makeup? <laughs> I mean, these days, they would probably cast somebody who's 80, 90 years old and then de-age them. You know, there's your Jeff Bridges right there. <laughs> young Jeff Bridges at his TED talk, but having that TED talk at the beginning of the film made so much sense. And what he's bringing up, you know, he brings up T.E. Lawrence, he brings up the idea of Prometheus stealing fire from the gods, just all of this stuff that actually brings the whole movie together. And I'm like, what the fuck were you doing cutting that out? This is actually, this is the movie. This is your central thesis right here. I think there is ample evidence to suggest that Ridley Scott, what he removes, you know, in most of the time when you see a director's cut for the movie, it's it's not necessarily that much better. At least in my experience, it's not that much better than the theatrical cut, right? Like the, the director's cut usually is more where it gets into self-indulgence and stuff like that. But when I watch the deleted scenes from Ridley Scott movies lately, it feels to me very much like, yeah, you should have left all that in and you should have cut out a lot of the stuff that you kept, <laughs> Mm -hmm. I mean, hell, when he went back and did another cut of Alien, the fact that it ended up being shorter than the theatrical cut. Even I was watching deleted scenes from the original Alien that, you know, somebody loaded them onto YouTube and I'm watching them I'm like, I think most of these probably should have just stayed in. 
even his own reaction to uh what is it the the blade runner sequel he's like he's like yeah it was good but you know it was too long i never would have let it be that long i'm like yeah i know yeah <laughs> that's a problem there, there. yeah you would have just whittled it right down to nothing <laughs> i always say that ridley scott is his own worst enemy with the way that he insists on correcting blade runner but i mean he seems to to me have lost the thread so much before prometheus and prometheus was just like what are you doing you're letting this child play with a gun it was just traumatic that movie just it was just like what are you doing these i mean they they followed protocols better in 1979 than they did in 2012 i mean as soon as they took off their helmets i was like okay that's it this movie's over well you know what's funny about that though because i was talking with a friend about about that after after we watched uh alien covenant because you know that happens in that one too and it's like and but it's like it's like you know i'm trying to remember for myself as like a kid you know and going into an adult you know, I never had a problem. I guess you don't, you just don't think about it or you just assume the technology was better. And, and they mm-hmm. talk about it, like they, they would beam down to a planet in Star Trek all the time and never wear a helmet. <laughs> oh, no. They were always M class planets that they were visiting, though, too. Right. But yeah. at the same time, like, yeah, I guess, I guess I can, I guess I can buy it. I think I'm just so angry with this franchise now that I'm just ready to be, no, that was dumb. <laughs> When you have the one-two punch of the two uh, ostensible experts, the geologist who gets lost in a cave system and the animal behaviorist or the xenobiologist who clearly cannot recognize a threat display, it literally looks like a fucking cobra and he wants to touch it. In the script, that part is – it's still stupid, but it's handled a little bit better. Like he doesn't – they don't have him get down there and say like, hey, hey, little, hey, sweetie, or anything like that. <laughs> so it's like, okay, it's still stupid that they're getting high out in space. <laughs> but, 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 but at least it's not as, as ridiculous as I'm going to basically just throw myself into this thing's jaws. Well, and that's the thing. When you watch Prometheus and you look at the various iterations of the script and what got in and what's come out and a lot more of revelations behind the scenes have come out on that. There, it started from a really great, good point. And there was a lot of very interesting stuff, some of which I think made it into the film. It's just we ended up with the worst version of that story. It just feels to me like it's going back to that same place of, okay, Ridley Scott latched on to these three things or these themes that he liked and everything else. Like he doesn't care about this monster at all. No. You even hear it when he talks about it. He's just like, I, I thought the monster was done, but apparently it's got more life in it. And that's why it's going to come back in Alien Covenant. It's like, you don't understand what it is you're messing with. <laughs> that is fundamentally why I don't want any more Ridley Scott Alien films, even though his from him making science fiction films. And I still need to catch up with that Raised by Wolf series he did for HBO. But I, I like him as a science fiction storyteller. But again, the alien universe is bigger than him. And the fact that he has been rightfully or wrongly given the keys to the kingdom again to just kind of blithely steamroll over everything. That's where it gets kind of irritating to me. I mean, it, it even, that even fell down into the fact where they, they just decided to start carving off the different continuities. The fact that from Fox's perspective, all the alien films are their own continuity. All the predators are their own continuity. And Alien vs. Predator is its own continuity unto itself. It's like they ignore all the other things. And as fans that were kind of invested in it, 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 it kind of feels like a slap, you know? 
it's lessening it. It's making it into one person's thing instead of, or it's letting it become one person's thing instead of what it should be. And and again, the way that Covenant ended, where it really did feel like they were setting up uh, David to be the father of the alien species. That, you know, he was the one who came up with the aliens in general, and he's going to be the one that's responsible for the derelict that the crew, the Nostromo, found. That doesn't even work just in the context of the films, because they literally said that this 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 alien had been there so long, it had become fossil, it had been fossilized. And there's only a, there's only a span of like 20 years between Covenant and the first alien film. How does that work? They're going to go with the easiest trick in the world. It's all going to be time travel. Well, you know what? Hopefully they're not going to go with anything. That's one nice thing about Disney now owning 20th Century Fox is I have a feeling they're going to clean break it. If the- what they did announce that, what is it? Noah Hawley is doing the TV show now. Yep. And so, and, and for me, I'm like, okay, okay, you know what? If he finds a way to get Sigourney Weaver to show up for like, I don't know, five minutes in an episode of that, I'm on board with that. <laughs> but 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 if it is going to be a and Noah Hawley's a you know he's an interesting and he definitely can take a franchise take something that that you wouldn't think could be turned into a TV show and turn it into a TV show but it it is that that thing of just let this let somebody else like let somebody else have this thing because look I understand that Ridley Scott you know feels like he should own it but we've already seen what happens when when somebody else takes it away from you that was aliens <laughs> and it was and that was great yeah, it was really weird because when they announced that he was doing it, people latched on to like all of the bad things that he had done. And I was just like, okay, um, guys, he's, uh, actually really good. Have you never seen Fargo? Like that he, he also did a great job with like bones and, and a lot of other things. And it's like they just latched on to like, I don't know, Lucy in the Sky or something. I was just yeah, like, Lucy what? in the Sky is the, is the one thing that, and, and I think Legion was just not what a, the Marvel movie crowd wanted out of, you know, out of that thing, but that didn't make it any less interesting. But it was just, again, it's like, well, this isn't falling into that category. And, 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 and I, I also, you know, I, I can't necessarily begrudge somebody, though, for being nervous about it, because it could very much be, well, this isn't going to be about, you know, this isesn't going to be about aliens. It's just going to be right. about the formation of Whaling yutani or something like that. It's like, let's just wait and see what we get. Exactly. <laughs> and that's that's the position I, I hold with it. We, we can't know until it comes out. I hope it's going to be good because I'm a fan of this franchise. I'm a fan of the concept of alien and I want more of it. I want people to play in this world. Saying that, I still want to say the I, 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 right now I have the opposite feeling when when it's. When it's like, no, 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 Ridley Scott should still do it. He's had two times so far (laughs) to try to get this right. (laughs) Yeah, he's had his time. We're done. We're done. We're done now. We're done. done. Your series reached its apex with the fingering. We can leave it at that. (laughs) And it's not that I don't want Ridley Scott to make movies. I want him to keep making movies forever. (laughs) But but I know what he's going to do here. Let's let's see what else he's got. Why why don't you why don't you uh, turn Black Rain into a franchise? Let's go with that. You know. I'd watch that. I was very curious about the Blomkamp stuff, um, though he really hasn't given me any reason to trust him on anything either. I mean, I I, I, District I, 9 I, was fantastic, but then you got fucking Chappie. 
I'm a fan of Elysium. Uh, Chappie, yeah, it was kind of a set uh, step down. I still hope that at some point, even though the chance of him making a movie is pretty slim, I would still like to get some kind of release of what his idea was, whether it be in a comic book format or just give us the script. Put out a book of this was what I was planning on doing. In in forty years, we'll we'll get Steven Scarlatta and I can't remember the director's name, and they'll come in and they'll do the uh, the Hodorowski's Dune, but it'll be Blomkamp's Blom Alien. alien. <laughs> <laughs> and all of these people went on to work on Noel Hawley's uh, TV show. <laughs> well, for, the, for a while, I was I was really expecting they were going to go the comic book route because Dark Horse, before they recently lost the license for Alien and Predator. You know, they had put out the comic book adaptation of Gibson's Alien 3, and they they just finished releasing a comic book adaptation of O'Bannon's uh, Alien script. And they were going to do a, uh original script version of Predator, but that got canned when uh, Marvel took back the license to, for the comic books. And now you get promotional pieces of uh, of a xenomorph standing there with with Star Lord's Walkman yeah. in the in the foreground. I was like, all right. I mean, oh. yeah, and I'm, and I'm sure it'll be fine. But it's still yeah. Kind in, of- in fairness, they did say that they're not planning on crossing it over, so they're just doing that as promotional stuff. It's like, hey, Marvel has it, so we're gonna we're gonna do these things. So we'll see how that goes. I mean, again, so much of my early buy-in to either the Alien franchise or the Predator franchise, it came from the comic books. So if you publish an Alien or Predator comic book, I'm going to be reading your Alien or Predator comic book. Those Alien and Predator comic books were so good. And a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them were as good, if not better, than some of the movies that we got. There's freedom there in the sense of, like, even going back to Alien Resurrection, right, where... And I know they had multiple endings, but but you know the, the the ending in the script that I read was not what I would say necessarily better than the the ending of the the final film. But you know why they didn't do it because it was going to cost a ridiculous amount of money. But then when you do these comics, it's just like the sky is literally the limit. Like it's in in that freedom is great. Well, I want to thank my co-host Mike and El Goro for being on the show. So, Mike, what is going on with you, sir? I'm just trying to get by. That makes sense. I think I'm succeeding, but, you know, who knows? I do see another viewing of Prometheus, though, in my future. I went all the way up to Prometheus and rewatched it today, that fan edit, but I couldn't bring myself to watching Covenant. I just couldn't do it. I have the special edition DVD of Covenant, and, yeah, I'll, I'll watch it again. <laughs> and if Ridley Scott me. gets to make another one of these, I'll watch that, too. And El Goro, what's going on with you? Still continuing on with the Talk Without Rhythm podcast, uh, depending on when this is uh, episode is dropping, we'll probably still be in the middle of what I call my Patreon Picks program, where I turn over the booking to my very generous Patreon supporters, which is always really fun because uh, th- they tend to uh, book films that either I've meant to get around to discussing or stuff I never would have considered. So it's it's always a great period of discovery and rediscovery for me. I am sprinkling my Patreons through the year, so that's nice. I'm, I'm doing a little spice. You see, I, I just, I just, I just book them right all, right in the, all at, uh, at the at the front end of the year. So well, that makes sense. I yeah. I might have to do that in 2022. We'll see. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link, speaking of Patreon, you'll find a link over to Patreon where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.